0: All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can i'm speaking out to you ladies and gentlemen and i'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather they reluctant to come in and we're going to start this very soon
1: welcome back to worthy i'm ben and i'm john and on this episode our 30th episode uh we're gonna be talking about the bridge on the river kwai but we have typically been starting these episodes 10, 20, 30, eventually 40, then 50, and so on and so forth, but if they look back on the previous 10 years that we had been talking about and watching and viewing and, and really just analyzing really deeply so we've um we've given out our i guess we can call it the worthies i don't know i think it's the first time we're calling it the <laughs> yeah, worthies the
2: first time you ever said that yeah yeah it sounds weird it does sound weird i but, like it though i kind of like it
1: yeah so we're gonna give out some uh, worthies and for the films that won best picture from 1948 to 1957 the bridge on the river Kwai, being the last movie of this decade of films so this is the 30th academy awards our 30th episode so let's dive into the first category of the worthies and that is best art direction john who did you
2: give best art direction to i gave best art direction to e preston ames from an american in paris obviously it's a big musical that we have here i think we enjoyed the film while we were kind of confused why it was the best picture i think it goes without saying that you know big mgm musical it's going to have some amazing sets it's going to have some great locations to kind of dance around in and sing through so Big shout out. It was great seeing that. And we also have Cedric Gibbons as well for an American in Paris. Ben, what'd you give for best art direction?
1: Yeah. So it was a toss up for me for an American in Paris, but I decided to go with Hamlet and I was to Roger K first. So for me, Hamlet, uh, if you, if you listen back to that episode, I really loved the, you know, the production design and art direction and the minimalistic approach they used. And I felt that really captured the essence of like what Shakespeare plays were like is if you know, Shakespeare, uh, when they performed at the Globe Theater, they used very minimal sets. They really just allowed the acting and the actors to be themselves, and to re- that's how the story was told. So I really enjoyed how little production design there was, but the production design that was used was so good and, and added so much depth and character to the stories that it was really unique and interesting, and so interesting, in fact, that I actually think that the Tragedy Macbeth, the uh, most recent Joel Cohen movie, kind of took inspiration from this version of Hamlet with their approach their production design so for me uh hamlet took uh, the art direction award but moving on to best score john who did you give best score to
2: i went with american paris again but this time for best score which is conrad salinger i just really loved the music in that movie uh, obviously it's just the most kind of stand out right in your face because it's a musical like we said but it has a lot of joy and the, the film kind of ends with a 17 minute ballet sequence and without really great music to kind of hold you together and explain what's happening, you know, you wouldn't really have and and really give that satisfying ending that you do get in that movie. So got to give it to an American in Paris. I gave it to an American in Paris as well, pretty much for the exact same reasons. Uh, Another thing too is we didn't
1: really have many other movies that I felt were, you know, we didn't really have any other musicals. There wasn't really anything that I thought that stood out like really, really big in my my eyes. Uh, I think maybe another contender we could have like potentially picked for this was actually the greatest show on earth like that had some fun whimsical stuff but not to the level of an american in paris it's classic you know musical adapted for a movie so i definitely think uh best yeah
2: i I felt like there was a trend here over the last 10 years where there really wasn't that much music honestly i think you could look at like on the waterfront as being one that kind of had some music here and there but It felt like over the last 10 years, maybe it was the advancement of audio and getting better, like, on-set audio. But, yeah, we look like we almost moved away from having these really strong, powerful scores throughout the movies. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I I don't think there's anything wrong with that.
1: And, actually, it's funny because I think when we look back at the next 10 years, when we do our 40th episode, there's going to be a few musicals in there. So we're going to have to kind of decide, you know, go back and forth on, like, well, because then it does become a bit of a musical question. What's the better musical Um, But for right now, American in Paris, you get the worthy for best score. Moving on to best editing. Who did you give best editing to, John?
2: I went with this episode's The Bridge on the River Kwai, which is Peter Taylor edited. And, you know, we'll definitely talk more about the editing, but I just thought it did such a great job of portraying so many different characters, portraying the location, and also giving a lot of time to these random supporting characters, some that we don't even know Really, what their name is, but the film really had a dis- distinct style, and I really loved a lot of the close ups and a lot of the kind of like cut in shots that they did, a lot of the pickup shots probably that they did. It really brought the film and it really felt like the location was alive. But, Ben, what did you give best editing? Yeah, so that was
1: like my runner up was the bridge on the River Kwai, and we'll definitely get, in, get into the pacing and, and how well that story is told and, and put together. But for me, I picked On the Waterfront that went to Gene Milford and to me I mean I gushed over On the Waterfront I think that for a movie it's like an hour and 47 minutes the pacing is so so well put together I think that there's great cuts I think that they're very purposeful for how they tell the story for the acting it helps Brando's performance and I just really think it's, a, it's such a tight well told story that the, it's all mo- mostly to the editing I think for that movie just because of how well it
2: tells the story puts it all together Uh, but moving on to best cinematography John who did you pick I went with Jack Hilliard for the bridge on the river Kwai again won't jump into it too much but this movie is stunning and I bought the 4k recently that just came out this year and it is gorgeous I can't recommend it enough go out and buy physical media yeah and I actually got to watch that 4k version (laughs) of the bridge on the river Kwai with John and um,
1: yeah for me this takes best cinematography as well the cinemascope aspect of it it, is phenomenal it david lean really knows how to pack the frame uh but jack Hilliard, being the cinematographer having to work in the jungle under those conditions having to there are some crazy stories that i had heard especially of him hanging on the edge of a plane to get ki- to get some parachute yeah, while was shooting on sure. s- like super 16 millimeter i think he was shooting on too so absolute craziness and the cinematography is absolutely stunning but again we'll get into that more in this
2: episode uh moving on to best screenplay john who do you give the worthy to I went with Bud Schulberg for On the Waterfront. I felt like On the Waterfront was such a beautiful character piece and it was really internal and it did a great job of kind of like setting us in this location and, and giving us some, some really great memorable side characters, which is something that I think we really just don't get enough of in, in some of these Best Picture winners. And I just love how we kind of, deep dive into Brando's character and and learned about his world and how he has to basically overcome it and and it was just a really beautiful movie that I think just has gotten better over time and has really influenced uh, other films and Scorsese for example uh, kind of continuing moving forward throughout film history so that is why I gave it best screenplay but Ben what did you give best screenplay
1: yeah again this was uh, kind of a tough one for me I love On the Waterfront but I actually went with All About Eve to Joseph L. Mankiewicz I absolutely love you know uh Betty Davis's performance in that everyone's performance in that and just such the quick you know the quick humor the quick you know wits that just goes throughout the entire screenplay it's so well crafted everything connects with each other uh all the lines are great uh buckle up it's going to be a bumpy night like what a what a beautiful and perfect line and so funny and uh yeah so i just think for me all about eve edges out on the waterfront in terms of screenplay uh, definitely the best
2: dialogue award goes to yeah and all I, about eve for sure
1: which i think kind of is like well what makes the screenplay the best screenplay and sometimes like for me i sometimes do like to look for a lot of dialogue a lot of like really like character you get just from the dialogue dialogue itself and all about eve really lends itself but then you look at it on the waterfront and there's so much emotive and physical acting that brando eve marie saint carl malden do that isn't necessarily in the script, but it's like part of the performance. You, like, you could look at it as the screenplay inspired them. It, it can be a whole back and forth for how you rate best screenplay, but both, both won the Oscars for best screenplay. <laughs> yeah. So like, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day, <laughs> but yeah, but looking at all the technical categories, we've had a, a good mix and a lot of the similar films, American and Paris, you gave it two, I gave it one, Hamlet, Bridge on the River Kwai, each, each of us awarding it there, which I feel like with the last few times we have done these awards, that like episode that we end up talking about after these worthy awards we don't really give it much praise but this is the first time i think we're really like okay like this movie does deserve some recognition so i'm excited that we do get to do that and we're going to talk about it more but let's move on to best supporting actress john who did you give best supporting actress to
2: i gave best supporting actress to and baxter as eve in all about eve you know she's right there in the name and when you first watch the movie you might think yeah, I mean she's not really the star. We're gonna go with, you know, Margot by Bet Davis. But when you really watch the movie, Eve is is really integral and Anne Baxter gives this really soft, subtle performance that kind of slowly changes as you go throughout the movie and you know you we all love as audiences, a character that changes from beginning into end. And when it's a character that is kind of mischievous and doing shit, that is not really the best and the most humane it, there's something kind of satisfying about watching that. And she gave such a great performance from the sweet side to the very kind of haunting last moments of that movie. Great, great performance. Ben, what did you give best supporting actress?
1: Yeah. So I actually went with Ava Marie Saint for on the waterfront. Um, I think that she, Completely, the way she's able to handle Brando and able to go toe to toe with him in so many of the key scenes, the emotion, the the really just like down to earthness that she brings to the character. I mean, her first introduction in the movie, she's so like emotional. I mean, her brother had just died in the beginning of this movie, so she's like really bringing her a game at the start and uh, really holds on to that grip throughout. So I really think that she was great uh, in that role, that performance. And over this decade out of the Best Picture winners, she stood out to me. Um, for Best Supporting Actress. Moving on to Best Supporting Actor, uh, John, who'd you give that one to?
2: I gave Best Supporting Actor to Susuze Hayakawa as Colonel Saito from The Bridge on the River Kwai. And again, we'll dive more into this movie, but he gives an absolute amazing performance, which is really complex and is a character that you shouldn't really like, but by the end of the film, you really kind of start to weirdly understand and I wouldn't say sympathize with, but... You learn so much about him that you actually like want to know about what happens to him in the end you know what where could like his story go if things you know didn't happen the way they did so really amazing performance that he kind of brings to life ben what did you give best supporting actor um john i'm on the same wavelength as you i gave it also
1: to susui Hayakawa. uh he was absolutely phenomenal in this movie uh i there's so much i think that we can say about him and i think we should say that for the discussion of the movie but it, it w- the, again this was like really hard to think about for a whole decade we had some really good you know best supporting actor performances uh, one that really stood out was carl malden so i was really thinking about that for on the waterfront but i'm like you know what he's won his oscars before <laughs> hayakawa only got nominated and you know what i'm gonna give him the worthy because he's completely worthy and we'll, i will we'll get into his backstory and everything but uh yeah susui hayakawa for bridge on the river kwai but moving on to best actress and i made a big bold statement Uh, a lot of episodes ago about this category Uh, but John take it away
2: I went with Betty Davis as Margot from All About Eve and you know I I think you can just go back and listen to our episode uh, on All About Eve and hear us gush about her and how amazing she is and how she brings this character to life there's really not much more to say she just is absolutely shining she's clearly a star when you see her on camera and you really just can't look away Ben, what'd you give best actress or who did you give best actress? to? So I said this in
1: our, what was it? Eight episodes ago, seven episodes ago. It's Betty Davis, all about Eve. (laughs) I mean, she absolutely just home run hitter, knocks it out of the park in every single way with this role and performance there. Again, like what John just said, I think you have to go back to the episode to truly understand like what we loved and thought about her performance. And she's just one of the most iconic of icons in Hollywood. This performance has been held up as like she should have won the oscar for this this was her like best role uh yeah so absolutely betty davis all about eve moving on to best actor this one will be interesting
2: john who'd you give
1: best actor
2: to i went with marty himself mr ernest borgnine for marty you know he is the digital character here you really gonna kind of you know pull your a game and really show what you're worth but It comes down to both his performance and how just like gentle and sweet and kind it was and also how well Marty is written. And I think that was also one of my runners up for, you know, best screenplay. And I really kind of consider that as an option as well. But he really brings this character to life. He is so sweet and charming. And you just want to like reach into the screen and give that man a hug. And I think that says a lot
1: yeah absolutely and um i think you'd be one of those like leaked ballot people that like people like me would see and be like oh my god ernest Borgnine's gonna take this but <laughs> you know what as great as uh irby was marlon brando oh my god <laughs> what what a performance i i love Ernest borgnine and and we gushed about him but we spent literally two hours talking about how great brando was i mean i still think it's one of my favorite performances in any movie uh so it, to me like brando again like he has to take this he completely reinvented the wheel uh with this performance so to me he gets
2: the worthy moving on to best director john who'd you give best director to i went with ilia kazan for on the waterfront you know we talked about how great brando is how great the script is for that film as well but it all really comes together with a great director and i i think specifically when i was thinking about who should be best director because it's so hard to think who put the film together the most like where did certain things come from can you just credit only the director for certain things and you know there's a lot of questions there and you really can't answer most of them it's hard to ever really realize you just kind of look at the final product and credit the director and for me I think about this particular moment in the film where we are in the court scene and we cut to what is supposed to be like the higher up of the mob we don't really see their face and for me, I, I just don't think that was in the script. It's such a small moment that I don't even know really, like, how you would even write that into the script. It feels like an idea that came from Kazan, and Kazan, And I feel like I might be talking out of my ass here, but that particular moment went on, I feel like, to inspire so many mob films. That weird, you know, there's always someone above you, that, that kind of, like, notion of, of you're being watched and that you're just a kind of small fish in, in a big pond, no matter where you are. And it felt like that was such an intentional thing, whether it was his idea to, to cut to that, whether it was in the script originally, I'm not really sure, but I absolutely loved On the Waterfront. And I think it really came together because of Kazan. So Ben, what'd you give best director? I went with Kazan as well for On the Waterfront. I mean, this
1: is, it's a really, it was, this was a hard decision as well because I did think about doing David Lean for a Bridge on the River Quiet, and that's visually stunning. But then I think about also like, what is a great performance besides just getting a good visual it's also getting great performances and you do have that in bridge on the river kwai but to the level that you get with on the waterfront it's pretty astounding and pretty remarkable so to me Ilya kazan gets that uh, best director nod for on the waterfront so best picture i think that there are some you know maybe it's a little bit of a race between on the waterfront all about eve bridge on the river kwai you know, American in Paris, you're giving it two awards, John. Maybe that's a clear indication of maybe how you're feeling. <laughs> but what did you give Best Picture for the last 10, uh, 10 episodes?
2: Well, this is as big as of a spoiler as you could possibly get, but I gave it to today's episode and today's film, wow. which is The Bridge on the River Kwai. And that is all I'll say. I'll leave the rest for our episode here. But, Ben, what did you give best picture from 1948 best picture winner all the way to 1957 I don't know if best I'm like comfortable winner. sitting in the room with John now after <laughs> like
1: I mean okay I mean I look I totally get it it's it's a great movie Bridge in the River Kwai is great I see your runner up is my winner and my winner is on the waterfront can't gush about it enough it, it's such a, just a brilliant fucking movie it has inspired so many to follow There's so many great scenes in it that are memorable it it really is just a phenomenal overall film and I think to hear more about like our thoughts just go back and listen to that episode but to me that's the best picture from 1948 to 1957 another one to mention all about eve uh yeah so really a lot of great awards for this uh this edition of the worthies this is our third <laughs> third edition of it 30 episodes and it's it's really crazy to think that we're at 30 episodes because it feels like it's been more honestly but yeah more but also less time i don't know,
2: it's hard to yeah explain, yeah
1: i mean we've been I've been involved with like this project, I'll call it, since the beginning of since March twenty twenty is what I'll like when it started, and John joined me pretty much a few months after that. Yeah. So it's been a lot, and it's been a really great journey. But thirty episodes is really remarkable. It's crazy how we got here. But let's just uh, have some fun. So let's answer that age old question, John, which is: Is the Bridge on the River Kwai worthy of the Best Picture Award of nineteen fifty seven?
2: The Bridge on the River Kwai. British prisoners of war are forced to build a railway bridge across the River Kwai for their Japanese captors in occupied Burma. In early 1943, a fresh contingent of British POWs arrive at a
1: Japanese prison camp in Burma led by Colonel Nicholson. One of the inmates he meets is Commander Shears of the U.S. Navy, who describes the horrific conditions. Nicholson forbids any escape attempts because they were ordered by headquarters to surrender, and escapes could be seen as a defiance of orders. The dense jungle surrounding the camp renders
2: escape virtually impossible. Colonel Saito, the camp commandant, informs the new prisoners they will all work, even officers, on the construction of a railway bridge over the River Kwai that will connect Bangkok and Ragoon. Nicholson objects, informing Saito that Geneva Conventions exempts officers from manual labor. After the enlisted men are marched to the bridge site, Saito threatens to have the officers shot, until Major Clipton, the British medical officer, warns Saito there are too many witnesses for him to get away with murder. Saito leaves the officers standing all day in the intense heat. That evening, the officers are placed in a punishment hut, while Nicholson is locked in an iron box after getting beaten as punishment.
1: Shears and two others escape, only he survives, though he is wounded. He wanders into a Burmese village, is nursed back to health, and eventually reaches the British colony of Ceylon. With the deadline for completion approaching, the work on the bridge is a disaster. The prisoners work as little as possible and sabotage what they can. In addition, the Japanese engineering plans are poor. Should Seidel fail to meet the deadline, he would be obliged to commit ritual suicide. Desperate, he uses the anniversary of Japan's 1905 victory in the the Russo-Japanese War as an excuse to save face. He announces a general amnesty, releasing Nicholson and his officers, and exempting them from manual labor. Nicholson is shocked by the poor job being done by his men and orders the building of a proper bridge, intending it to stand as a tribute to the British Army's ingenuity for centuries to come. Clifton objects, believing this to be a collaboration with the enemy. Nicholson's obsession with the bridge, which he comes to view as his legacy, eventually drives him to engage the officers as well as the sick and the
2: wounded in manual labor. Shears is enjoying his hospital stay in Ceylon when British Major Warden invites him to join a commando mission to destroy the bridge just as it is completed. Shears tries to get out of the mission by confessing that he has impersonated an officer hoping for better treatment from the Japanese. Warden responds that he already knew and that the US Navy had agreed to transfer him to the British army to avoid embarrassment. Realizing he has no choice Shears volunteers. The commandos parachute into Thailand Warden is wounded in an encounter with a Japanese
1: patrol and has to be carried on a litter. He, Shears, and Joyce reach the river in time with the assistance of Siamese women bearers and their village chief Kunyai. Under cover of darkness, Shears and Joyce plant explosive on the bridge towers. A train carrying important dignitaries and soldiers is scheduled to be the first to cross the bridge the following
2: day, and Warden's goal is to destroy both. By daybreak, however, the river level has dropped, exposing the wire connecting the explosives to the detonator. Nicholson spots the wire and brings it to Saito's attention. As the train approaches, they hurry down to the riverbank to investigate. Joyce, manning the detonator, breaks cover and stabs Saito to death. Nicholson yells for help while attempting to stop Joyce from reaching the detonator. When Joyce is mortally wounded by Japanese fire, Shears swims across but is shot himself. Recognizing the dying shears, Nicholson exclaims, What have I done? Warden fires a mortar, wounding Nicholson.
1: Dazed, the colonel stumbles towards the detonator and falls in the plunger, blowing up the bridge and sending the train hurtling into the river. Witnessing the carnage, Clifton shakes his head and mutters, Madness. Madness. The Bridge on the River Kwai is directed by David Lean. Written by Carl Foreman and Michael Wilson, based on the novel by
2: Pierre Boulle. Produced by Sam Spiegel. Music by Malcolm Arnold. Cinematography by Jack Hilliard. Film editing by Peter Taylor. And art direction by Donald M. Ashton. The Bridge on the River Kwai stars William Holden as Shears. Alec Guinness as Colonel Nicholson. Jack Hawkins as Major Warden. Susui Hayakawa as Colonel Saito. James Donald as Major Clipton. Jeffrey Horn as Lieutenant Joyce. And Anne Sears as
1: Nurse. So the bridge on the River Kwai, John, a Hollywood classic, big cinema scope, big everything. Obi Wan Kenobi's in it. I mean, <laughs> oh, Alec, Sir Alec. <laughs> what else is do it you a, need to know? <laughs> what else you need, exactly? Um, the, there's a lot. I think we can start with, but uh, if you would allow me for a second, I kind of want to have a little fun uh, and do a little sing sing along with you because oh, Jesus Christ, <laughs> it, it it's really okay. So when the British. British soldiers soldiers <laughs> march into the, uh, into the camp where they're being held hostage. It, 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 it's actually a really interesting setup. Basically, you see these guys walking through the jungle. The, you already have this wide frame going on. And you do have a really good scene with uh, William Holden uh, bearing a body. And, and I want to get to that, but I want to talk about this first because it, it really has just been on my mind. So as the army is m- marching in, they are whistling. Uh, Very similar to Full Metal Jacket, so I think Full Metal Jacket may have been inspired by this. And what they're whistling is the Colonel Bogey March. And it's a very whimsical sounding song. You probably don't know it based on just hearing that title. And I wouldn't have known that based on the title too, but I know the song really well. And the reason why I know the tune really well is because my grandpa used to have us literally march and sing in the car, a kind of a, a parody of using this tune. And it was for the cleaning product Comet. I don't think you have no idea. You have no I idea have where no I'm going. no idea what you're talking so about. So yeah. this is what my grandpa used to have my my mom and, and my aunts and uncles sing in March too. He would have me and all my cousins sing in March this when we were kids. And this is how we would sing it. We would go Comet. It makes your mouth turn green. Comet. <laughs> it tastes like gasoline. Comet. It makes you vomit. So drink some Comet and vomit today Jesus and we would Christ. sing that for just in like hours on end and my grandpa had so much fun with it so that's for me it's a bad thing to teach kids though oh <laughs> that's such a bad thing to teach my kids. grandpa was a doctor he was fine <laughs> he,
2: well, that's even worse <laughs> that he was a doctor it
1: was fuck? having fun we were having fun with it we were, you know it was it was a commercial that was like the comic commercial was like a parody commercial so to him knowing him he just loved the whole idea and whimsical aspect of it so this movie popularized that tune and you hear it throughout the entire movie. It's a really big thing. And it, you also hear it in other movies, notably Spaceballs. You heard it in the new Jackass movie. They uh, whistle it in The Breakfast Club. It's in the original Parent Trap where they mimic what they're doing in the bridge on the River Kwai where they're marching along and whistling it. So this like tune in, is based off of a British march which has become very popularized in pop culture. And for me, just like, seeing that for the you know for the first time i was like well how do i not talk about that how do i not bring up this like really deep personal connection uh which is just so fun and it really it adds a lot i think to the characters of the film because when you look at nicholson he's so fucking serious of bringing these guys into the camp that to him like of course they would whistle and march they had to whistle and march in time and it and when the way that it all comes together is when they all come and see the the uh the camp, they're all lined up uh in in order, and then what happens is in Nicholson's head and his POV is he starts to hear a huge like orchestra and symphony playing along with the Colonel Bogey March that they're whistling to and it's so it adds so much to his character already that this guy he takes the British army and his position very fucking seriously. And and to me also it adds that just fun context of comet. It makes your mouth turn green. Comet, come on, John. Tastes like gasoline. Come on, you know it. Comet. It, it makes, makes you vomit. vomit. <laughs> so drink some comet and vomit today. Yeah, I don't. I don't
2: have any fun stories like that, but I do. I do love the entrance and I love the introduction to him this way because, yeah, you're exactly right. It shows how serious he takes being in this position and not just in war, but in the military and, and how rigid and, and strict he is really. And I think it's like a perfect introduction to his character. And it also, it kind of points to how the, this movie deals with comedy, which is like mixing it directly in with some of the harsher, not violence. Cause I don't really think this movie is that violent, but it is dark. I mean, we're talking about prisoners of war. It's it really can't be light, but I think the movie tonally does a great job of like balancing that humor with, the real serious aspects of it and, and Nicholson is like a very 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 serious character so much that it may like turn people off in a way but I think that's what makes his character great so yeah I love that little like story I, I don't know why your grandpa would uh <laughs> even suggest drinking comet especially as a medical professional but that's a cute story Ben yeah thank you well yeah it's very cute and uh I'm happy to bring it up and, and I love it because I think for me and
1: I brought this up before watching these older movies and it just you, fo- I form a huge connection with my grandparents, and you know their love of film got passed on to me. So, uh, all sets of my grandparents. So, it, this has been a lot of fun, and that was just a really great connection. So, to me, I was like, well, that's where my grandpa got that from. But let's move on to the uh, to more of the film itself. So, as I mentioned before, there's this really good opening scene with William Holden, uh, who plays Shears, and they're burying, uh, you know, dead, you know, dead prisoners of war, and it's a uh, to me it's very samuel beckett-esque you know um waiting for godot end game type of vibes where it's very irreverent kind of like dialogue back and forth that also has like really deep meanings to it while also not really realizing that for the audience it's really i, I really like it in the way it's set up holden really gets like right into his character who's kind of like yeah i don't really give a shit i'm kind of just like here and so what if i'm here I'll, i'm just gonna die and you know be a body eventually type of thing so he's very like nihilistic in that approach, which I really like. And another really good thing about the scene is the way that, and this is how great David Lean is: is huge cinema scope. Foreground of Shears burying the body, but in the background you see the British army marching in, which just adds so much depth, so cool, yeah, and, uh, and complexity to the frame. So uh, I thought this scene was really, really good. Uh, you have any thoughts on this
2: opening scene? I like, I love William Holden. He's so charming already. Like he's just dirty prisoner of war, you know, soldier who's currently like digging graves and finishing graves for all people that have died. So again, with the tone, it's it's the way the movie's written and the way Lean has kind of like really been very conservative about how he kind of like lets the characters bring the humor. You know, he's not like trying to like have jokes that are just fully written out jokes. He lets the the performers really kind of add that level of humor and, and charm and someone like Shears who can still talk very like open and blunt about about these deaths and especially later on when he talks directly with al guinness's character and i love the these two characters against each other even though there's barely any scream time that they have because they're almost like the opposite of each other and i think that goes pretty heavy in this film and the way the film kind of like compares british men versus american men i think there's like a definitely an ongoing theme throughout this movie that is kind of about that and I think Shear is kind of like the center of that it's it's hard, hard to kind of pin who our lead is in this movie but he's the top billed actor at the time William Holden for this film and it's weird because you know Guinness has most of the screen time when it comes to like our lead performance but it he's a plays a Holden plays such an integral part in this film that it just all comes together because of his character so and it's a perfect introduction I don't think you really realize what's going on or the kind of situation that he's in or what he's trying to get out of which is you know bribing one of the japanese officers to get into the sick ward even though he's not really sick you know he you can already see that he's he's playing the game and and it's he's very american james bondian where he's not gonna like take no for an answer he'd rather get you know shot in the back trying to escape so i i loved his character just in general because he kind of like screams james bond before james bond and he's and especially with on the beach with a nurse like there's a lot of aspects to it that kind of stream, scream James Bond to me, which is funny because it's a British character, but <laughs> it's, it's our American man who's kind of coming off as this, like, suave hero, right? So, yeah, I mean, I love William Holden, and it's a great introduction scene. Yeah, and I love all the soldiers marching in the background. It's, it's creating such a big, wide shot. And we also didn't talk about the opening of the film, which is these great shots of just the nature and we start with like a hawk flying above in air and we're getting helicopter shots and we're getting shots that feel like they're from around the world in 80 days but like actually for a reason you know not just to show hot air balloon in midair they're here to kind of tell the story and show our setting and having a a shot on the train is is awesome it feels new and it feels more modern than ever and yeah what what a great opening to a movie
1: yeah and if I may like kind of branch off that point and another point you made before about the british versus american soldiers i think it's just about how everybody is as a soldier and how it's very person to person i think everybody gives off different vibes and, and the seriousness they take with it i think we see that characterization in each of the soldiers that we meet in sato uh, as well and the way he commands i think he's a little jealous of nicholson at times which is i think how nicholson is is able to get in with that but then another way you can think about it is you're just saying about the nature and like, you know, this movie takes place in the jungle. You can think of it as like all these soldiers are different, you know, species and like how they survive, how, you know, survival of the fittest type of thing. So I think like there's that interpretation you put in there because this movie really does come down to can you survive in this jungle and can you survive throughout this war, even though this, the war really has nothing to do with the plot of the movie like this. The war could have been any war that this was a part of this could have been modern day and it still would have made sense uh with how it's approached and everything so yeah I, it's a really great interesting o- opening sequence and then we get m- introduced to Saito and, and this is Nicholson and Saito's first you know head-to-head type of thing and I love just this simple like introduction where Nicholson he has the whole army lined up he's waiting for them and Saito comes out and Nicholson varies like my name is Nicholson And Saito just looks at him and goes, I am Colonel Saito. Then he kind of just pushes him out of the way and steps onto the box to basically start telling the British soldiers that they're prisoners now. They have to work. Uh, And he ends it by saying, uh, uh, today you rest, tomorrow you will begin. Let me remind you of General Yamashita's motto, be happy in your work. And the be happy in your work line is also mimicked by shears in a quick cut uh, before that. So you can tell that basically Saito's, not giving much of a shit about them as humans. He's like, you can go and escape. You're going to die in the jungle. So you might as well be here and work and be happy with it.
2: (laughs) It's so disturbing. And it's not even that he's immediately like abusing people or you're seeing it, but you can just see like how abusive this man probably is and how he's already breaking the rules and, and telling how officers will have to work as well. And, you know, it's one shot amazingly. I mean, this whole fucking movie is shot so, so stunningly. And it's hard to take your eyes off of literally any shot. And, I mean, we have such a beautiful scenery here. Being in the jungle, it's so green and vibrant. And this being Cinemascope, we're getting this big, beautiful widescreen. So, we're seeing all these men lined up. And it's fully in frame. It's, it's really gorgeous. And I think the reason why this movie works, obviously besides just those technical elements is is just how great the script is and how great our characters are. And, and Saito is a huge part of that because he is again, kind of the opposite of Nicholson. It's their kind of like competition against each other that really makes this film so charming. And you look at both of these characters and you kind of compare who you would be in this scenario and, and which side you would kind of like try to understand and, and, and try to relate to even though we're talking about prisoners of war, you can kind of see both sides of it. I mean, Saito's here and he's gotta build this bridge before he dies, uh, before he literally will have to kill himself if he doesn't finish it in time. And Nicholson's just trying to follow, you know, the the law of, of order and, and, and what is told through the Geneva Convention, even though what this movie shows is that there really is no laws in war. You know, anything's on the table and and it just shows how muddy and, and disgusting war gets, even though you're exactly right. There's really not much about being on the battlefield it's more so just about constructing the bridge and about these humans and yeah that's a great analogy to consider them all as, as animals i never thought about that it's, it's really cool
1: yeah i mean i think that i mean i think the animal idea can be applied to so many other movies really sure. really easily but this one i think really does lend itself to that idea and i think that's why they use the hawk at the beginning of the movie like i think may, maybe the birds are supposed to represent that these are free-flowing people and free-flowing ideas but there's still that nature and like there are like they have to look out for themselves because a hawk being a predator. So it yeah I think there's a lot you can look into with that. I love the the comparison between you know Saito and Nicholson. Saito being a leader through chaos where you have Nicholson who's a leader through order, and you can clearly see how which one is more effective um, between the two. Which also I know upon reading and researching this that the Japanese people weren't necessarily thrilled with how Saito is. Like, or how at least the japanese people are kind of you know projected in this movie that they're not good engineers that they don't have order or command over people when they're like no but we do we have really great engineers and really great design ideas so it's fascinating to see how like that was taken um into the film and how they did approach that so the movie keeps on going uh basically nicholson and the british officers take control of everything and uh, they start checking out everybody's body, you know, all the prisoners, and like checking them out health-wise. And um, Shears, he says to them, "Don't bother about me, Colonel. I'm not anxious to get off the sick list." So this is again a really another good characterization of Shears, who's like, "I don't really give a shit. I just want to just live my days and not try and get killed."
2: Yeah, because he says in a line right before that about how like everyone he's known has basically died, yeah. like and died from so many different like diseases, snake bites, all these weird different things in the jungle. And which is also another great Saito moment, how he says there is no escape, basically. Like, there's no fences, there's no bars, because you'll just die in the jungle if you try to run away, which is just metal as yeah. anything. <laughs> Very uh, Darth Vader-esque to throw <laughs> yeah, another exactly. Star Wars type of thing in there. Uh, anything
1: with Alec Guinness, uh, we're gonna, just going to fit in as much Star Wars <laughs> as possible. Anyway, so uh, again, then, you know, Shears is sitting with the you know commanding officers of of this British battalion. And he starts to say, like, there is no, you aren't able to escape. And even though if you try, like, it's not really worth trying to do. And Nicholson kind of puts down the idea of escape. Um, So he says, I understand how you feel. Of Of course, it's normally the duty of a captured soldier to attempt escape. But my men and I are involved in a curious legal point of which you are unaware. In Singapore, we were ordered to surrender by command headquarters, ordered, mind you. Therefore, in our case, escape might well be an infraction of military law interesting the doctor says yes interesting point and shear says i'm sorry sir i didn't quite follow you follow you you mean you intend to uphold the letter of the law no matter what it costs nicholson without law commander there is no civilization Shears, you just took my point here there is no civilization and nicholson ends it with saying then we have the opportunity to introduce it i suggest that we drop the subject of escape and this again so now this really does open up more about nicholson's character he does follow the letter of the law he believes that without law there is no civilization so to him it's like well if they're telling me i gotta go be a prisoner i'm gonna go be a prisoner that's what a british soldier would do they listen to command and Shears is like holy fuck in this jungle i don't
2: think that really matters at this point yeah well i mean he's seen what it's like here too and nicholson is just kind of fresh he's new he thinks that everything will go in order of the way it should by the Geneva Convention. But it it perfectly sets up their character and for Shear's character to kind of, like, be the opposite of him, like, trying to get out of there and his life matters more than anything else, while Nicholson is more so kind of convinced that this is just how it should be and they should follow the rules and then when the war's over, they'll be home. And it's not like he wants to stay there and he likes Saito, it's just that he truly just believes in law and order to its fullest you know, ability, and I, I, think this could be a hard movie to watch as a viewer, simply if you hate that, like if you hate the way Al Guinness's character is so hell bent on following orders and and being strict. But I think what comes from that kind of frustration is probably even more satisfying because it ends up leading to him being, you know, thrown into the the iron box or the sweat box. There's so many different names for that uh, contraption that <laughs> the they oven. put him in. Yeah, the oven, which is definitely the worst. Uh, But it leads to a change in – really not like a change in him. It's more of a change in Saito and and the people around him and how that kind of convinces him to keep moving or convinces Nicholson to keep moving as well. So I love the comparison between Shears and and Nicholson here because at this point we we lose Shears soon and he kind of goes off on his own mission. But they're still so connected and we get like a final – great connection bit at the end that kind of like ties their their arcs together
1: yeah and to talk more about you know Guinness and Nicholson as a character I mean apparently there's some really big contention between Guinness and the director David Lean on how Nicholson should be played it seemed like that David Lean was like no he has to be this this the straight-laced military law and order guy and Guinness was like no he's there's some humor you can play with this and you definitely see that part of it come out with kind of the backhandedness that Nicholson does bring. uh, And a lot of times we'll bring some of those instances up, but he really does try to make this a comedic performance and a guy who can you really tell if he's fully there? Because yeah, to build a bridge with the enemy to make it this good is kind of teetering on that edge that Clifton brings up at one point. It's like, are you helping them? Are we kind of going against it? And Nicholson's like, no, we're being law and order, but Are you really like, where's the the flip of the switch that happened? Maybe it was in the in the oven, the iron box where he goes a little too mad.
2: He's cooked a little too long. Yeah, cooked a little too long (laughs) is right. (laughs) And that's where I think a lot of the humor comes from after he gets out, because it's kind of like the slap in in Saito's face. And uh, yeah, I think that's really interesting aspect of his character, because you get to kind of wondering as the viewer. Like, will he go too far? Like, will he almost become Saito? Will he become abusive to his own men? Like, will he cross that Nicholson? Will, like, will he cross that line himself? And is that kind of what this movie is about? And, and by the time you get to the end, it's more so it's not really about that. It's, it's more so just Colonel Nicholson is kind of a selfish man. He's kind of using this as, as, a, as a way to kind of justify his actions throughout life. And I, I'll talk more about that when we get to a, a later scene on the bridge. But, oh, yeah. but yeah, it is a very, very interesting character and a character that I love because it's not just saying like, look, here's an awesome guy that you'll root for. You really question some of the things he does and it makes you think as a viewer, like, would I have done that? Like, is that the right thing? Like, it really, is that the best thing to do? And is he the best guy? It's fascinating. I love stories where it's ambiguous and kind of up to the viewer to decide that. Yeah, I think everyone is ambiguous in
1: this story. So the story continues. One, Shears, um, another of the prisoners that he's talking to at the beginning of the film and then a British lieutenant all attempt escaped. Uh, Shears is the only one that survives. He manages to escape gunfire. He lands in the river, gets kind of washed away to this, uh, to this village on the outskirts of the jungle and he is saved and he's sort of put away on the shelf for the next like 40 ish minutes of the movie then we come back to the camp and now um now Nicholson before everyone gets sent off to camp he does try to confront Saito again and is like my officers are not going to work this goes against the Geneva Convention officers don't do manual labor Saito I think slaps him with the Geneva Convention and actually draw literally draws Draws blood in real life. So that was, from what I read, not supposed to happen. Uh, So uh, Hayakawa really slapped Guinness enough. And Saito gives this really good speech. Well, I think it's a really good speech because of the character, but it's not necessarily the content is good. So he says, All men will work. Your officers will work beside you. This is only just, for it is they who betrayed you by surrender. Your shame is their dishonor. It is they who told you better to live like a coolie than die like a hero. It is... It is they who brought you here, not I, therefore they will join you in useful labor. That is all. And that's Saito's way of being like, these guys gave you up. These guys surrendered you. Why are you listening to them? Why are you still trying to give them any sort of respect uh, to their command when they sold you out? I'm here now, I'm the one in charge, trying to instill fear in them and being like, okay, now like let me lead you work for me. And I think it's again, like one of those good character developments for Saito before we really reveal like why he's doing all this, um, because it gives you that, you know, he becomes that villain. He's like, Oh, this guy, he's, he's really just hard ass. He's really chaotic. He does not give a, a crap about human conditions and human lives. He just like wants to keep this Japanese army rolling along through, you know, the Southeast Asia and moving westward to, you know, defeat everybody in world war II. So, Like this guy is really gunning for it. So,
2: That's how his character really comes off here. He's not a good person. (laughs) I mean, yeah, he's not a good person, but you're also kind of like, yeah, I mean, I understand his point of view, and it's a performance and is a characterization of someone who is a villain, but he's not like a Charles Lawton villain. You know, like he's not like extremely over the top. He's really just trying to do the best as he can for the position that he's in. It almost feels like, uh, very much so as on the waterfront that there's always like a bigger fish. There's always someone watching it. And that's kind of the way I thought of the Hawks in the beginning and, and the end of this movie. Is that there's always something else out there like looming over you for death. Or or whether it's in some other antagonist. There's always something kind of awaiting for you. And whether it's waiting for you to die or just kind of another enemy for you to fight. So he, it's a, co- a complicated character because he is one he's doing a performance that is like so charming while being so sinister. It's uh, very much like a Darth Vader, even though we kind of credited uh, Lawton's performance as a Darth Vader, like performance way, way, way back in meeting on the bounty. Thank you. Meeting yeah. on the bounty. And I just, I, he's not a great guy. Obviously he's keeping all these people imprisoned, but at the same time they kind of rationalize and, and explain why. And I think, setting up the scene where we have all the officers being very defiant not wanting to leave the camp not wanting to do anything other than stand there kind of shows how defiant he is and how just set in his ways he is and it's both Nicholson is set in his ways and Saito is set in his ways and it's like they're just rubbing heads for no reason other yeah. than that they are trying to prove and top one one like each other right? yeah
1: it's like who, who has the right like who has the right idea who whose point is right and you know, it, it's, it's really compelling, you know, stuff because one visually watching, you know, all these officers stand in the heat, there's some really cool visuals. There's some shots where it looks like they're almost like all like leaning forward in the heat. And I, it, this all has to do with the cinema scope with the, how the widescreen format sort of warps the image, but it also like really lends itself to making it bigger. And so they're all standing in the heat. Uh, they all get put in their box. Nicholson gets put in the oven. And then there's this back and forth between, you know, are they going to be let out? No one really knows what's going to happen. And then finally, uh, Saito brings Nicholson out and he tries to kind of reason with him. He, you know, this is in Saito's hut. And Saito goes, I do not think you quite realize my position. I must carry out my orders. My orders are to complete the bridge by the 12th day of May. Time is short. I only have 12 weeks more. Therefore, I am compelled to use all available personnel. And Nicholson goes, but no officers except, in, and but no officers except in an administrative capacity. And Saito says, but officers are working along the entire railway. You know it, I know it. And Nicholson says, I'm not responsible for the actions of other commanding officers. And they keep going back and forth. Saito offers him, you know, a drink. He offers him scotch actually. And then uh, Nicholson doesn't really want. I wouldn't want to drink scotch after like being dehydrated for at least a week
2: you know (laughs) I don't think it's that though it's just piss him off yeah like I don't think he's thinking about that I think he's just not eating in order to kind of be defined again and and almost just antagonize him in a way that he can right without like being physical yeah
1: exactly and it just it's a good it's it's a mind game almost watching them too and also the actor is phenomenal watching them go back and forth and so the conversation continues and Saito goes you know what will happen to me if the bridge is not built on time Nicholson, I haven't the foggiest. (laughs) Saito, I'll have to kill myself. What would you do if you were me? And Nicholson says, I suppose if I were you, I'd have to kill myself. Cheers. And he drinks the scotch. Saito goes, I warn you, Colonel, if I am to die, others will die before me. Do you understand that? Nicholson Major Clifton did mention something to that effect. That won't solve your problem. I'm sure we can arrive at the proper solution. And he goes to Saito and says, please sit down. Now tell me, uh, Colonel so, uh, do you or do you not agree with that the first job of an officer is to command? Saito, of course. This is Nicholson says, this bridge of yours, it, it's quite an enormous undertaking. And to be frank, I have grave doubts whether your lieutenant, uh, what's his name, Miora, is capable of tackling a job of such importance. On the other hand, I have officers, Reeves and Hughes, for instance, who've built bridges all over India. The men respect them. It's essential for an officer to have that respect. I'm sure you agree. Uh, if he loses it, he ceases to command. And what happens then? demoralization and chaos a pretty poor commander i would be if i allowed that to happen to my men and then they go back and forth a little bit and uh he he takes the dinner knife and puts in the tabletop and he goes i hate the british you are defeated but you have no shame you are stubborn but have no pride you endure but you have no courage leave this place and nicholson says it's pointless going on like this and they call the men to bring him back to the uh to the sweat box to the oven so it's this really good back and forth there's some dialogue it didn't necessarily put in there but what it does is create a, again a lot of that character context and this is the motive for Saito is if he doesn't get the bridge complete he has to commit ritual suicide which is actually a fascinating plot detail and i don't know if you knew about this with Cecilia hayakawa and maybe this is the time to kind of step back and talk about hayakawa so hayakawa He was actually a humongous star in the Hollywood silent film era in the early 1910s and early 1920s. He was a really good looking guy. He was actually this huge sex symbol of the silent film era, sort of playing this role of like, Oh, the, this, this villain, he used to play the villain characters. He was, you know, it was interracial. He would take white women and he wouldn't necessarily like get them in the end, but his sex appeal was huge. and Women were all over him and this made him a huge star. So, already you're like, wow, that's fascinating because he probably didn't really know like that this you know Asian actor was getting such praise in early Hollywood, and he just kind of got like phased out. He did have somewhat of a successful transition in talkies, and this movie he has a very heavy accent, so it's a little unfortunate. So maybe that did play in a little bit of his like not fully becoming a huge star, but his stardom was still there. He kind of went down a little bit during World War II. He actually. Ended up in France and was couldn't really leave because he was there when the Nazis invaded. So he started selling watercolor paintings. So maybe not an American in Paris, an Asian in Paris. Is what oh, we Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> uh, maybe that's a good film ver- version of something. But anyways, uh, but Hayakawa, you know, he really he had a huge and humongous career, really successful. He got a nomination out, uh, out of this. But I bring all this up and why it's a fascinating connection is when he was younger, he. tried to join the naval corps in japan but failed because of a ruptured eardrum and he decided to commit ritual suicide and he his parents found him and he survived so for so you can't imagine Sixty years later you now have this role whose character's whole motive is to not have to kill themselves so i couldn't imagine what was going through his head having gone through this crazy life like uh, he was 68 years old when this movie was made i mean he lived a complete full life huge stardom lots of money lots of fame lots of different stories he could tell and it all comes back to this idea of suicide and who you are as a person what can you make yourself and your legacy and that is what drove him to have this huge stardom in the first place so to me that's absolutely fascinating how it really comes full circle with Saito having to build a bridge or else he has to kill himself to Hayakawa he did try to kill himself because he didn't feel enough he didn't feel like he could make something of his life so I, I found that to be it's sad, but it's really fascinating how it all connects like that.
2: Yeah, it is really fascinating, and it goes to show, I mean, we I said in the very beginning of this that this movie is, is in a remaster on 4K. It's now available, and I think this movie in particular, while he plays the villain, I mean, it's a very memorable and classic, iconic Hollywood film, and I think his legacy kind of continues to go on, and here we are in 2022 watching his amazing performance on the, the original Print and it's it's amazing. I absolutely loved him in this movie, and that's such a great connection that you know I had no idea about. Yeah,
1: and I think that that's like why we do this podcast is to connect stuff like that. There's, um, I got a lot of that too from uh, This Was Hollywood. It's a great book. uh, If no one has heard it or ever seen it, uh, This Was Hollywood, definitely go check it out. They have a whole chapter on uh, Sui Hayakawa and his career. Anyways, the movie continues and goes on. And now Nicholson and the British soldiers, they are able to get out of their sweat boxes and out of their the oven. Uh, Saito gives in. He uses the uh, the Russo-Japanese War as a general amnesty idea that he'll let everyone go. The British officers don't have to do manual labor. Everyone's really happy. Everybody's congratulating Nicholson. They're like really cheering him on. They're carrying him. All the officers are really happy. And then this is cut with Saito just bawling and crying in his hut, which is fascinating because how many men have we seen cry? We saw Clark Gable really cry and gone with the wind. But like, that's probably the closest I think we've seen a guy like really cry and really break down uh, in a, one of these best picture movies. And, and Saito is, he's distraught. And I think that again, has to do with like I brought up before that he's jealous of Nicholson. He's jealous of how Nicholson is able to command and, And have order and get shit done and um, to him he feels like a failure and this is like that first step of like I have completely failed because I let the British overtake my command of this camp
2: yeah I think it's really maybe the best scene of the movie or at least one of the best scenes in the movie because it has everything that the movie offers I mean it's got the great performances between the two of these men but it also has just some of the levity of the way Nicholson kind of takes over the conversation and and really takes over the camp in that moment takes over the lead and we have the reaction from Saito where it's it is really intimate and personal and we've seen people cry like you said with Clark Gable but this is a different kind of this is like an emotional breakdown and it's just something that we like rarely rarely see and and this is really complicated too it's not like you lost someone it's It's so complicated. He's crying because he literally might have to kill himself. Like it's like losing himself. Yeah. It's, it's not only just that too. It's like, he's losing the men. I'm sure it wouldn't just be him that would die too. It'd be probably all of his commanding officers. Like it would probably go down the line and get worse and worse and worse. So it's so complicated. And I think that's what makes this movie great is that you can laugh in a scene. And then moments later you could be like, Oh shit, like this is so real and and so intense and, and, and dark in the same way that it is kind of goofy and funny and uh, from like Al Guinness's performances it's it's really astonishing that it even works and that it's totally coherent and, and all of it kind of comes together. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I
2: think we're now going to jump into a scene with a little bit of comedy and
1: a little bit of fun, and that's where uh, Nicholson and the officers start telling Saito that like, hey, your plans for this whole bridge are no good, <laughs> where the location is bad, how you're trying to construct it is bad, the amount of labor you're putting into it is bad. So the way they're presenting it is very like official, very corporate, almost where each guy has like a different report. They're trying to give Saito, they're giving him so much respect. But each time that a new person brings up a new point, Nicholson jumps in quickly and goes, oh, Saito, you know, Colonel Saito really quickly. Do you think we can get some tea? <laughs> do you think we can get some dinner and like brought in and like, he's getting all this like attention and, and care from Saito. By really just being backhanded and posh and british and exactly how you'd expect it which is so funny which is again i think that's that's guinness's approach to the character is bringing this charm and like he had like nicholson has all this charisma without being loud like he has so much command and suaveness, but he's not in your face about it but he's so good with his the way he calculates and the way he he talks and presents it that the side is was like yeah of course of course, I'll get you all this. And then Seidel's like, at the end of this whole thing, he says, can you finish the bridge in time? And Nicholson goes, frankly, the consensus of opinion is that it's impossible, but we'll certainly give it a go. After <laughs> all, we mustn't forget that we've wasted over a month through an unfortunate
2: disagreement for which I was not to blame. He, That's such a good line. Yeah. I, uh, that rewatching the movie, that was like such a funny line that stood out to me. This whole, le- this whole scene is hilarious because... It is. It's like the power dynamic. He is still a prisoner, but he has complete control because Saito knows that there's literally this is the last opportunity to get this bridge fixed so he's just stuck and you're just kind of watching him who's so defeated it's so satisfying to see this guy who's been torturing all of our heroes and who's now like being tortured himself in such like a a minor way but it's so satisfying to watch it's so funny and and so perfect it's just absolutely perfect yeah
1: it's interesting how the narrative really developed from like You know that they weren't had disagreement and now they are working together which becomes that crux of like are we helping them too much and then the film i i'm not gonna say like this is a bad thing but then it does start to change its narrative and flip around who are the main perspective and what what is the main focus of this entire story and what happens is is that nicholson you know we know they're gonna build the bridge they we know that they're gonna put a lot of emphasis a lot of work a lot of care into it because that's what nicholson believes is the right thing to do so I get plot-wise and visually, there's not much really to show for much, you know, for rest of the film. So we now go back to where Shears is. Shears looks like he's at Club Med. It looks like he's having the time of his life. <laughs> he has a beautiful, you know, blonde nurse who's helping him. This was an inclusion from Hollywood. They're like, we have to add some sex appeal to this. So we're going to have William Holden uh, making out with a, with a beautiful blonde on the beach and that's going to be all the fun and of course it's going to be what brings everyone into the movies not just that this is a badass story of a lot of great characters and a lot of big names in it because of course the only people think the only thing people care about is sex but anyways i digress and now we get into kind of this other like interesting plot which is shears pretty much being like captured in his own right by the british army because the british army figures out that he's not actually a commander he was just this like naval officer who had gotten who you know his ship went down he traded uh uniforms of a dead officer and he got a lot of respect because Shears is like well i want to have be treated nicely i saw how the officers were treated in their hospital so i decided to pretend to be one he pulled Um, a don draper on him yeah uh, spoilers (laughs) for those who uh who haven't seen oh come
2: on that's not (laughs) as i mean i guess it is it's who fucking cares? I mean, like, that, that, the
1: show's been out for over ten yeah. years, so well, you let's haven't be seen it. Real, yes. yeah. on, you're
2: right. You're right. You're absolutely but right. I, that made me think. Like, I wonder if that was where this that idea came from from the show. Whether that it's such an interesting idea to have because, especially Cheers, who's escaping, he's kind of our the humor up until this point in the movie. He's like the very much like the head-on humor compared to Nicholson, who's that sly kind of cheeky British humor. Shears is the American who can't keep his mouth shut. He's very much the uh, classic American guy. And it is like a weird contrast. And I think it works perfectly because we're like in the jungle. Everyone's all sweaty. And then we cut to like bright, loud, right on the beach. It's like this beautiful location. And the rest of the movie's been beautiful, but it's like wooden shacks in the jungle compared to like a beautiful resort overlooking the water or right on the beach where you have him drinking martinis out of a thermos, <laughs> which I thought that was great. And the character's just like, where did you get alcohol? He's like, it's a hospital. Of course there's <laughs> alcohol here. So, that, yeah, there's a lot of great humor. But, yeah, it's a scene that really doesn't need to be in the movie. I think it shows the difference between the, the their two situations. And that's really kind of the only issue I really have with this movie when it comes to the, the overall structure is these scenes with Shears in, in this kind of uh, – I don't even know what to call it. I mean, I guess it's it's a a hospital. Yeah, Yeah, it is a hospital. It is is a
1: really nice looking hospital.
2: So it's at the hospital, but then he also goes up to the base uh, of the major and they kind of discuss a mission and that's where he kind of reveals where he's kind of taken the identity and they already know. And they're basically essentially blackmailing him and to be like, you're coming onto this mission to blow up <laughs> yeah. this bridge. Right? Well, they, they already treated him
1: essentially with the U S Navy. The <laughs> U- They basically like, yeah, that they told the U S Navy, Hey, we have one of your guys who was actually pretending to be an officer. Do you want him back? No, we don't want him back. You <laughs> yeah. Can have him. So yeah, they, they tell him he has to go back. And actually the way that these, I, I talked about it before of how like, seriously people take it and soldiers and like how it's it's more of a movie about like how person to person it is because you meet major warden played by jack hawkins and he's like guns a blazing i'm gonna throw explosives everywhere <laughs> this is like it's like a hunting match you also meet some other like british officers who are training others and they're very like nickel almost more serious than nicholson of how they uh they train they everybody each other yeah, yeah and, how, and yeah exactly and then you also have like the lead commander of the entire base who is very you know he's very orderly but also he seems very chaotic in himself he presents what's called an l pill which is a lethal pill to shears and it's like yeah if you get captured you know kill yourself with this so it's kind of like that mentality of like where um nicholson is like well we were told to be captured and we were told to listen to that command where it seems like these british Soldiers
2: are like, yeah, we'd rather kill ourselves than be captured by the enemy. Yeah, it's it's very different. And it's also that's why I thought about the American versus the British aspect, because Shears is like, are you out of your mind? Like he just escaped all of this. He finally got away. He's thinking about himself and then how he can kind of be safe. And he's so close to getting back to America and being safe for good from the whole war and then minutes later they're like yeah take this pill if you need to kill yourself like you're doing it just for us and he's just stuck in the situation where he's like you guys are out of your mind like the british are insane he, he has to be thinking that because he just met nicholson who's just telling everybody to not escape to build the best bridge and he finally escapes and finally thinks he's free to meet more british people who are even more insane than <laughs> nicholson is so it, it is again adds to the humor it's the absurdity of it but it's played so straight and so real that like they (laughs) they just they don't even they don't understand that he's like panicking and freaking out and I think that is particularly shown when they're talking about parachuting and how like oh like maybe we should test parachuting and they're like oh well you know it's way more (laughs) likely to be injured if you test parachuting once twice three times so, <laughs> so might as well just do it once. So yeah, and the the button of the scene is Shears basically asking whether he'll have a parachute or not when he jumps out and the British officers are just laughing at him because they think it's a joke, but he's being <laughs> dead serious about it. Yeah. yeah,
1: he has no idea like what these British soldiers are really gonna be up to. Yeah. And um it yeah, it's all like fascinating. I am back it up just like a quick second. Um so while uh while Shears is going to meet the major ward and everything, he kinda gets ambushed by he's training british officers in a knife uh, attack or or like using knife tactics and the guy that that comes up and seeks behind him is this guy Joyce and Joyce joins them in this mission and Joyce he plays his character who's he's younger and he doesn't really want to kill but they're like you have to kill and using the knife will come up again as we get towards the end of the movie so I thought that was interesting of how they constantly circle back to things in this movie the script is really good at if they mention one thing, it's gonna be brought back up by the other. Like with uh Nicholson while he's in the oven, he asks about Shears' escape and and he says how crazy that is. And then, you know, when Shears hears about Nicholson, he's like, That guy was absolutely crazy hearing about him. <laughs> so th- there's always this good connecting and going back and forth and really coming back full circle that I think the script writers and lean do a really good job of capturing. So now uh now they go into the jungle, now they're going to go back to the prisoner of war camp to go blow up the bridge they parachute in already one of the guys dies because he falls into a tree and it looked like he just got impaled by yeah, one of the I branches
2: and broke his neck or impaled or hit his head yeah yeah it
1: did not seem very pleasant and then they have to then truck through the jungle and they have the help of this village that shears uh, actually they helped shears and now they're going to have the village help them so the really interesting thing is they have a village leader help them and they also have the i think it's four four siamese women from the village help them so you have these four women carrying supplies with them helping them throughout this trek they don't really have much dialogue if anything and if in all honesty they're badasses in every respect (laughs) like I don't think they're misused at all. I mean, they're misused in the sense they could have been used more and like they would have been more, like if this movie was made today, they would have had a bigger role. They would have been guns blazing, kicking ass themselves, but they are, they don't feel helpless. They don't feel like that. They only need men to survive. It feels like that the men need them to survive. So I thought that was a very, yeah, very much so. Yeah. It's a very interesting aspect to include, especially again, when you think about that, they pigeonholed, you know, the, the love between Shears and the nurse and like to add that sex appeal but you had these beautiful asian women in this movie who are being badass who are helping who are you know destroying the bridge with them and like that would have been more than enough so it's like you could that would have been sufficient you know what i mean
2: yeah i think you could i mean this is a film that i'm sure you could really nitpick it and, and find things that are probably offensive to certain people and races but i think this movie comes off as being quite respectful because of not a lot of dialogue is is given to these kind of other characters like Saito has a lot of dialogue. It's very much about his perspective, but these Burmese women, as they keep calling them throughout the movie, they don't, I don't think ever really say a line. I think you hear them speaking a little bit back and forth in their native language and uh, they don't really, you don't really see and and hear what they're saying. So I think it, it could come off a lot worse if maybe they're, more into it, and they're they're speaking, but it's like based on their actions and what their actions are are leading these men. They're basically the ones who are really leading this mission, and and these men are so reliant, especially when the major gets shot in the foot. They're like so reliant on helping him and helping them get to the the bridge in the location. So it is it is awesome, and it does. A, that's why I love this movie too. It does so much with just no words at all, like with Joyce's relationship to one of the women and, and to to uh, a relationship to one of the women. Like they have like a bond. You can see that without even speaking. Like you can see that Joyce has kind of like a spark. Like maybe it's a romantic thing. Like, maybe they're <laughs> looking at each other. Cause and when, that's, yeah, and that's the kiss of death for him. And that is the kiss of death for him. Right. But they, they honor these, these characters and by kind of giving them a lot to do and they're in powerful positions, but they don't kind of like go overboard. Like the way <laughs> we just spoke about in, uh, around the world in 80 days, which is the most offensive <laughs> thing possible. So yeah, well, this movie does a great job of like honoring these people. And I think their legacy and, and while also kind of adding to the story and, and making it all about the, the story we have.
1: Yeah. I a hundred percent agree with that. And um, what I said before, the kiss of death with Joyce, Joyce does the typical, all right, let me go talk to one of the Siamese women. He goes, Oh, how did a lovely thing like you end up out here? And you're just like, well, that's <laughs> that it's such a movie trope. You're going to die. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know. I don't think this movie is the one that invented that trope, but it was pretty like, oh, come on, Joyce. Why would you have to say that? Yeah, you jinxed yourself, (laughs) Joyce. (laughs) He did. And so what happens is they're going through the desert. John mentioned before the warden does get shot. They are somewhat ambushed by Japanese soldiers. They fight back, but then one gets lost in in the jungle, and um, warden and Joyce run after him, and Joyce doesn't stab the guy when he had the opportunity to, and warden does, and warden gets shot in the foot. So now Warden's injured, who's, you know, the big like demolition person of this mission. And again, what John was saying, like they carry him on the litter. The women do. they They pick up his slack and it becomes a little contentious because Warden is clearly dragging them behind. Shears wants nothing to do with this entire mission. He wants to get the fuck out of there. He does not want to be there, but he's kind of there against his will. And then they sort of stumble and warden goes you'll go on without me that's an order you're in command now shears shears goes you make me sick with your heroics there's a stench of death about you you carry it in your pack like the plague explosive and L pills they go well together don't they and with you it's just one thing or the other destroy a bridge or destroy yourself this is just a game this war you and, the, and that Colonel Nicholson you're two of a kind crazy of For what? How to die like a gentleman? How to die by the rules when the only important thing is how to live like a human being? I'm not going to leave you here to die, Warden, because I don't care about your bridge. I don't care about your rules. If we go on, we go on together. So he's basically saying, fuck you. You're exactly like Nicholson. You're just as mad. If you're going to send
2: me into this suicide mission, you're coming with me and you're dying alongside by side. (laughs) Which makes perfect sense because I love a certain there's a moment where they kind of land initially and their meetup with the women and Shears realizes that, like, he does not need to be here for this mission at all. Like, there's people that are on the ground, they know the location better than he does. They took it, they're taking a different route than he did to escape in the first place. He realizes he's here just as an extra man in case one of them dies. And one of them did die, so it's even more on his shoulder of what he has to do for a country that's he, he's not even representing. So, you completely understand from his point of view, or you're like, why, what am I doing? But at the same time, his character has been very selfish Selfish in the way that he, you know, has really only been thinking about it himself. When he escaped, it was all just about himself. He, he killed a man to escape, but it wasn't really to help save another soldier escaping. It was just to make sure that he would make it out of there alive. So, it, it shows and, and that's what's so conflicting about this movie is that you have a character who does things that you may not agree with, who's then put in a situation where you're like, wow, I completely understand how frustrating that might be, how, like, annoying that may be, and And I think this moment of them traveling with with his foot uh, injured and we get a lot of amazing cinematography throughout that scene and and the montage of them traveling these beautiful wide shots of the jungle and the shot of the bats flying in the sky. Oh, that was beautiful. Yeah, there's so many shots of this movie, just nature where it was like, uh, do they plan on taking this? This just happened naturally. And it made me think a lot about like how hard this movie probably was to make just being kind of in on location being on in these jungles filled with mother nature trying to like take camera equipment like are they bringing lights into into the jungle like how all of this how all of this is kind of working and operating and i even saw some behind the scenes is that there was an assistant director named john Carrison who was actually killed in a car crash when they were driving to a location it was him and a couple other men like a makeup man uh, who was working for the film, was also badly injured, but he was actually the assistant director, or I believe the second assistant director for this movie, and he was killed on the location, uh, trying to drive to like a specific location, so it really just shows how extremely dangerous it is sometimes to film movies, especially films that are very much outdoors and in nature, and I feel like I just had to talk about John Karrison just for a moment, because he is one of those IMDb profiles that has like four different films, and he was assistant director, and for people that don't know, like assistant directors is usually the step that you kind of are in before you become a full time director and, and are making your own films. And we have seen a lot of assistant directors kind of become legendary directors, you know, and it's just a shame because John Carrison could have been one of those people as well. So shout out to John Karrison and, and just the gorgeous cinematography and how insane this movie was probably to make as well.
1: Oh, yeah. And I, I feel like we're not talking
2: about the cinematography enough as well.
1: And yeah, you brought up that they get so many great nature shots. We've, me and you have talked about the night scenes. I definitely, you brought up, it's definitely some sort of filter <laughs> they filmed that during the day, maybe a yeah, little yeah. later in the day, but
2: amazing like day for night. Like it is, yeah. I don't think most people would realize by just watching it. No, it's, it's awesome.
1: No, not at all. And it's definitely like a, a really well done, uh, I was about to say performance, but well done job (laughs) by the the cinematographer and and everyone behind the scenes putting it together. What
2: I found so fascinating about the cinematography is how they're able to still get so much light and dark and and in between, you know, where we have scenes of people like in these huts and it's like so dark and, and dimly lit while outside is like beaming of this like hot sunlight. Like it just feels hot in every single frame of this movie. This is like insanely bright sunlight and it's sometimes so bright that like some parts of the frame are even like overexposed but it felt it feels very intentional to just kind of bring that heat and that intensity to the film and the way it looks
1: yeah and speaking of cinematography I want to get to this really good scene that happens on the bridge so now we're sort of back with Nicholson we're back with Saito everyone you know Shears, and then we're checking through the through the jungle and they actually come upon Seeing, um, seeing a bunch of the British officers and they think that they're doing manual labor, but in actuality, they're just putting up a sign being like, this bridge was constructed by yeah, the British soldiers. That. And they're like, oh my God, madness, having like, officers work and do manual labor. Yeah. And really, like, it was the British officers who were themselves were forcing themselves doing the labor. But anyway, so Nicholson kind of does this like, one last look over the bridge before you know, the next day when they're really going to open it up. And it's a beautiful sunset beautiful cinematography in terms of the background but what's interesting is lean's decision for how he shoots this scene so let me say the quote and the lines first and so you can visualize and maybe in your in your head how you're thinking of Saito and Nicholson on this bridge it's it's complete it's sunset it, they're both like Nick Saito's like I can't believe that this happened it all came together and Nicholson is proud of his work and completely like just amazed by everything that happened So Saito says, beautiful. Nicholson replies, yes, beautiful. A first-rate job I had no idea it would turn out so well. Saito, yes, a beautiful creation. And Nicholson says, I've been thinking. Tomorrow, it will be 28 years to the day that I've been in the service. 28 years in peace and war. I don't suppose I've been at home more than 10 months in all that time. Still, it's been a good life. I love India. I wouldn't have had it any other way. But there are times when suddenly you realize you're nearer the end than the beginning and you wonder you ask yourself what the sum total of your life represents what difference you're being there at any time made to anything or if it made any difference at all really particularly in comparison with other men's careers i don't know whether that kind of thinking is very healthy but i must admit i've had some thoughts on those lines from time to time but tonight tonight and he drops his stick that he that he's holding into the river blast i must be off the men are preparing some sort of entertainment. So now Nicholson, you really like this is it. Like this is the biggest opening again to his psyche is that he's what is it my life? Like what is life? What is purpose? What is, like what am I doing with all this? And to him, you can clearly tell that the bridge is this like this is my purpose. This is my meaning of life is showing how much of a command I can have and, and how British ingenuity can create something so long lasting. And what's interesting about it, when bring up the cinematography, is David Lean shot Nicholson from behind the entire time, and Guinness was pissed off about this. So that, <laughs> so Lean and Guinness apparently, who they worked on like I think four movies together, like huge movies together, and apparently they just did not see it eye to eye. And this really culminated in the scene because Guinness was pissed off that he's like, "Why are you shooting me from behind? Like, clearly, like you should be ser- shooting this from the side as I'm looking over the bridge and get some really beautiful shots." And it seemed like Lean was like, fuck it. I just want to get this scene done and over with. And this scene kind of turns into, you know, Guinness's Oscar performance. I think this would have been the clip that you would show. It's such a great speech. It's so emotional with so much depth that it, op- it makes Nicholson a, hu- a human character. And so to be shot from the back is like, you can say the intent is like, oh, we well, don't know who the real Nicholson is, but it's also kind of puzzling because you're like, you want to see Guinness's face. You want to see his emotions and his reactions to his words.
2: Yeah, I don't know if this is intentional, whether we can credit Lean, or whether we can kind of go in and and credit the editor in particular to kind of making this decision. Like maybe they shot other angles and they just weren't included in the final edit and cut. And to me, this feels very intentional. It feels like they shot it this way to put the audience in a position where you don't know what Nicholson is planning. Like is Nicholson secretly knowing that they have to blow up this bridge? He drops his his he drops his cane uh, or the, the kind of stick cane that he's kind of been walking around with. It falls into the water and, and immediately you're like oh is that like him marking a location. Is that like where they should put the bombs on the bridge or like specifically where they should kind of blow up the bombs first. Like as a viewer and I actually I've seen this movie young like when I was younger with my dad and I probably hadn't watched all of it through. But I specifically remember the last 30 minutes the crazy climactic end of this film and it even after already having seen this scene i was still questioning like oh like does nicholson know like he's is he really in on this this whole entire time like is that why he's facing away because he can't like continue he can't even lie to saito's face about how this is about to blow up how everything's about to come down or is it actually him just considering his legacy which this film is very much about legacy i think it's about you know Nicholson's legacy and and him being so hell bent on building this bridge because it defines his legacy. It it permanently puts you in a place where you know this bridge will. There's a line earlier in the film where someone's like, "Yeah, like we've talked about or we've seen bridges that have lasted six hundred years in this country and they were you know they were built so long ago and they're still they're still going to last for six hundred years." And and Nicholson is so taken aback. He's like, "Oh my god, six hundred years. That's that's amazing." And it's like a a spark into what what his mindset is and and that's you know I'm getting older I may even die in this prisoner of war camp even though we finish this like this could be my final last mark on earth where people can remember me by I I made a difference and this will forever be here and then we have that with Saito as well who's you know he's concerned about his legacy and his legacy might end if he doesn't build this bridge like he literally might have to die because this bridge is not going to be complete so this bridge is so important for his legacy and continuing it and and then we have shears who really doesn't his legacy is dependent on whether he's alive or not he's so black or white that it's like i'm alive great that's awesome don't care about my (laughs) legacy like as long as i'm living that's what matters and he's the complete opposite of nicholson in that way who he's so concerned about the past and so concerned about you know what his life means and shears like i'm so lucky to even be alive the fact that i'm back here at this bridge is is madness really yeah absolutely and and as you said this leads into the last half hour
1: of this movie which is pure adrenaline pure tension and what really sets this movie apart from so many others I, I think to me like this last half hour is a master class by David Lean of how to build tension of how to you have no idea how this movie is going to end based on how this how everything plays out so to set it up first uh, it starts with um, shears and Joyce uh, and I think I think Kari who's the Siamese village leader who comes with them and they go into the water they cover themselves in mud and they you know swim like really quietly down the river to start putting the explosives on the bridge there are Japanese soldiers pacing back and forth on the bridge so they're trying not to get caught with that so that there's all that tension there that's also cut back and forth with the soldiers back at the camp and they're putting on this like fun show like having a good time to celebrate they finished the bridge a little homoerotic of uh, some of them dressing up as women uh and singing and love songs to each other uh nicholson's having the time of his life uh laughing about this uh Sido is in his hut and he's looks like he's writing a letter and he has a knife and you're like is Saito about to kill himself with his like suicide letter but what, actually what happens is you see him cut a little bit of his hair off So maybe that's him writing a letter to a loved one, um, which is the first time that that kind of is opened up that you realize that maybe Saito has some family or a wife. So all this is cut back and forth. Uh, Nicholson gives a speech at the end of the show being like, I know you all must feel disappointed, but you should be proud of all the work that you've done. And which is so ass backwards for how it should be, you know. They, you know, he really does see this as a point of pride and it's absolutely fascinating. So this tension and tension builds, they get the bombs, they set it in place. Shears and Joyce have their parting and goodbye because uh, they are not going to see each other until maybe after the mission is complete. Joyce is by the detonator. Shears is off in the distance um, waiting just to shoot uh, if need be. The morning comes and the big twist that is revealed is the water level went down in the river and because of that you see some of the wires on the bottom of the bridge you actually see a wire on a stick and i thought at first i thought oh is that the stick that nicholson dropped did i get taken by the current and pick up the wire mm-hmm. but then upon looking at more it was it was a much bigger piece of wood <laughs> that uh that the wire got caught on so now so now everybody in terms of who placed the explosive, shears joyce and major warden all realize like, Oh shit, we might be exposed. We might not have this Nicholson and the rest of the British battalion are crossing the bridge. It's a form of pride Nicholson. He's staying back. Uh, he said, Site to let him stay back to see the, the train come across, which again, cuckoo, uh, <laughs> for wanting, you know, for helping the enemy. Like, I do think that he's a little nutty for doing this. And as he's doing like one final inspection, he takes like a piece of what looks like a leaf off the, the train track, because he wants everything to be proper, Nicholson, and what he sees are the wires. So now he starts to freak out because he's like, What the fuck is going on? Like, is someone sabotaging this? And he brings Saito down. They follow the wire down the river to where Joyce is hiding. And this is where the madness really does start to ensue. You see Warden and, and Shears essentially just yelling out, Kill him. Kill him now. <laughs> kill, you know, kill both of them. Uh, so Joyce has the courage and. He kills Saito from behind. So he stabs Saito without him realizing it. Nicholson's like, Oh my God, like people are here to destroy the bridge. And he goes after Joyce and Joyce is like, but we're British. (laughs) We're British soldiers. We came here to blow up the bridge and she, and uh, Nicholson is like not having this. Uh, So he gets in a wrestling match. The Japanese soldiers see all this ensuing because Nichols, I think Nicholson starts to yell out like, help, help. (laughs) Like, yeah, something's going on. And then, uh joyce gets killed i think it's by a japanese bullet but i have yeah. read people try to point out that major warden fired that shot oh, but i but i watched it last time i watched it it looked like a japanese yeah, soldier it doesn't come off that way yeah so I, so joyce dies from a gunshot wound you have shears now running uh into the into the fray uh to because he realizes joyce can't do it and he goes to attack uh nicholson but warden starts shooting off mortars and it looks like that Shears got shot by a Japanese soldier in the mix of the mortars. He dies right in, at the feet of Nicholson. <laughs> and they both look at each other and they go, you. <laughs> <laughs> Such a good line. Yeah, like you, like, oh, my God. Like, it, that again, like, it comes full circle. So for one, Nicholson thought Shears was dead. So now he's seeing yeah. Shears is alive and Shears is coming back to destroy everything. So you have all that. And then you have uh, Shears who's like, I don't want to be here i don't have anything to do with this but i'm going to die a hero's death uh which kind of you know makes him really seem like he's a really good soldier a really good effective leader um and then nicholson is like appalled because he's like oh crap another mortar goes off he clearly gets hit by it by the shrapnel but he gets up and he kind of stumbles and then this becomes a very questionable thing so what he does is as he's falling, he falls on the detonator. The train is coming. The train uh, bridge blows up, which because Nicholson fell on it, the train carrying all the dignitaries and soldiers, they fall down. It looks like everybody dies except for Major Warden and uh, Dr. Clifton, who is watching us from the side, which, again, like to put Dr. Clifton there is so just <laughs> like, oh, we need to have a POV of watching all of this. I think there's a point to it, but yeah, go go. Yeah, well, yeah, there probably is a point to it, but my big question is, is Nicholson's fall on the
2: detonator intentional or was that accidental? No, I think it's totally accidental. And that's what makes it humorous. I mean, it's like this goofy thing that happens, and to me, it's like I laugh at it every time because it's just absurd, him rolling his eyes and falling. It's such a comedic (laughs) fall, yeah. What have I done, yeah. It's such a comedic line and like reaction to it, and it just hits perfectly the way he lands on it perfectly like in half crushes it immediately blows up perfect timing it's such a release of tension too yeah that, you described it in like two minutes but really that entire thing was like 25 minute tense scene yeah. going back and forth between all these characters
1: yeah again like I, I know i rambled for a bit there but just to give like the full picture of like there's so much going on which again like lean does such a great job of balancing all of that like that is truly like impressive to balance essentially four different points of views and plot points and making it all work and interconnecting it super well. And um yeah, so that's essentially how the movie ends. The movie Do do you think that was
2: intentional though? That he fell? Oh that that he fell. I
1: I look at it both ways. The um I I think it was accidental, but I do think that there is an argument to say that it was intentional that he realized like saying what have I done is the his moment of like holy shit he snaps out of it like I did help them. I did do something. And then he gets hurt and he's able to pick himself back up. And that was like his last like heroic act, which was to blow up the bridge to, you know, destroy everything, which again, like, how do you know, like how much do you really know if you just got hit by shrapnel and in, in a mortar explosion? So I've never
2: been in a mortar explosion. Have you John? <laughs> <laughs> no, I have not. <laughs> so I, I found it really interesting that they left major Clipton behind. I mean, it makes sense story-wise because they say, you know, all the officers will then take the, the train previously and, and then we'll ride it over uh, and join the men. And he's left there to watch it, but Major Clipton is not too big uh, of a role in this movie. He has some pretty significant scenes, but there's a, a scene earlier in the film where he's basically questioning Nicholson and questioning whether they should be doing so much for the bridge doing so much for the Japanese and for Saito and, and whether he's going too far or not. And I think he's that character to kind of put that doubt in Nicholson's head. And he's that character to kind of, as the audience as well to kind of like question Nicholson, whether he is doing the right thing or if he's going too far, if he's really being a good soldier or not. And I think the movie is obviously definitely about war and the different perspectives, like you kind of spoke about and how different people see it and I think this is a huge component of it i mean we end the film with him seeing everything saying madness madness and it's such a great line reading like it's so intense the way he says it and it it just shows us he's the doctor right like he is the man there to to help and take care of everybody so i would imagine that his thinking is very logical like you have a cut you put a band-aid on it right like there's science here to fix things and nicholson is like no like and there's a great line where Nicholson basically says if Saito needed like heart surgery, like you would help him and give him the surgery, even though he's access to our allies. So it's like he questions that doubt against Clipton as well, like whether he should be helping them or not. But does that really justify them going to this length and building the bridge? And I know, especially from the actual text and then from real historic events, it's very different depending uh, from what actually happened and what's portrayed in the film here. And a lot of people kind of, you know, look down at the film because of that, even though it's you know, clearly a fiction film. It's not trying to exactly portray what happened during this time. And I think a lot of people are annoyed by that because it was kind of quite the opposite where a lot of British soldiers were trying to actively sabotage building these bridges and, and kind of working on these different projects. They were like bringing in termites. They were doing all these things to actively try to stop. And kind of destroy what they were doing. Meanwhile, this film kind of makes it look like they were just honorable soldiers and prisoners of war. So there's there's a lot to go in here, but I think Clifton's character is necessary to kind of show just how ridiculous everything is. Like every point and every side of this is absurd. Saito is is, is ridiculous. He's gonna have to kill himself if they don't build a bridge. Like it's it's absurd. It's it's insane. And Shears is like escaped and then returned and he's looking at these british men with their l pills and and joking and having a good laugh about all the craziness that they have to do and and they're literally going there to kill like hundreds if not thousands of men by like destroying the train mid bridge cross so it's like all these characters who are like none of this should be happening like all of this is is idiotic and shouldn't be the way that it is but this is war for you there really are no rules and that's kind of exactly how i took it at the very end where clifton is literally like war is madness like this is absurd there's no rules as much as you want to try to follow it's only going to end in in death basically and and it happens for Saito who's following the rules and for nicholson who's following the rules and for shears who tries to break against the rules to only then have to follow the rules again and that still ends in death so it's just insanity. And yeah, Clifton is our like point of view into the film, but he's necessary. I think to, to bring up all the, these big questions. Yeah. I, he's like the consciousness of, uh, of all the characters and what is right or wrong. And
1: it, it ties everything together at the end, calling everything madness. I mean, it's truly a crazy scene to watch unfold. Within just minutes, all the major characters are dead. <laughs> the bridge is blown up. <laughs> we have no idea what's about to happen. And there's really like it, it is a war film but it's not really a war film it's more of a character no type of film which is fascinating to think about
2: and how did you feel about Major Warden surviving being the fact that he's the one kind of like pushing everyone to go yeah. on this mission and he's the only one who survives oh he he's crazy <laughs> he, absolutely <laughs> crazy with how he uh with,
1: with how he uses explosives and he <laughs> he turns to the to the women behind him because all the Siamese women were with, with him because he is injured so he can't really do much and he shot off mortars and he kind of is like I had to do it implying that he Had to shoot the mortars That even though Shears and Joyce Were right near them he had to shoot them He had to didn't matter, he, yeah. he had to set off the Bombs to destroy You know any attempt to You know stop the blow up of the bridge he, He's an interesting character And, and again it, it ties into the whole like He views it as a game him and Nicholson are very Similar of their characters and how they View the war it's
2: I think it's like a larger commentary too on just officers versus the men in the military and how they'll continue to say these things after, you know, continually telling you to put yourself in danger, to put your life lives in risk. And then, of course, he's the one who doesn't even have to get down and dirty. He's the one who can just shoot mortars (laughs) from a distance. And of course, he's the one who survives, who then can go off and tell the story, even though he is not nearly the main character in the story.
1: Yeah, no, he's definitely not. And I think that there it's a good question of like who is the main character because we have re, first it seems like it is Nicholson Alec Guinness's movie but then the second half of it does flip and become William Holden's movie and I, I still think it's more Nichols, uh, Nicholson and Guinness's story and I think that they're the main actor but I think William Holden does an incredible job and, and really does well with his screen time so I feel like we've hit a
2: lot on this movie are there any last minute thoughts on the bridge on the river Kwai no, I think we really hit everything. Honestly, like, I think we went through all the major beats and hit all the major characters. Yeah, I think, I think we that, we we, we ourselves. Yeah, yeah, we
1: worthied ourselves into <laughs> a great. And this is a great film. And we we, I mean, it felt like we haven't really talked much about it. But now I look at the time elapsed that we have recorded, and we've t- we've taken a lot to talk about this movie. And it's really fascinating. There's a lot to sink your teeth into. So let's jump into the thirtieth Academy Awards.
0: Wagon Train, Father Knows Best, and Craft Theatre will not be seen at their usual times tonight so that we may bring you the special telecast of the Motion Picture Academy Awards following immediately. See Father Knows Best at 9.15 and Wagon Train at 10.30 tonight over most of these stations. From the RKO Pantages Theatre in Hollywood, the 30th Annual Achievement Awards at the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, Mr. George Seaton. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. At this time each year, it is the function of the president of the Academy to bring you a message from our Board of Governors. This year, the message is brief but enchanting. It is simply this. Tonight, our program is brought to you as a public service and will not be interrupted by commercials. The sponsors of the show waiting behind this curtain are all segments of the motion picture industry, the creators, the producers, the studios, artist representatives, distributors, and your neighbors who own and operate the motion picture theaters of America. Because people who make movies also make news, the journalists of the world press are here in force this evening. Due to the unprecedented coverage of this very special event, we have an innovation this year. We have erected this pavilion adjacent to the stage stage door to accommodate the reporters, photographers, and newsreel men who are here to record these activities. After the winners and the stars who present the awards leave the stage They will be interviewed and photographed in this area. Mr. Bill Miller of Price Waterhouse and Company, a regular on this program, is with us again. However, because our show contains elements of entertainment we have not attempted in previous years, Mr. Miller will save time by supplying each presenter with a sealed envelope immediately before his entrance. Mr. Miller, do you certify that all the sealed envelopes are in this sealed box and that nobody bonded or otherwise has messed around with it? I certainly do. Well, then let's get started.
2: The 30th Academy Awards were held on March 28th, 1958 at the RKO Pantages Theater in Hollywood, Los Angeles. For the first time since the ceremony was televised, the entire event was actually held in the RKO Pantages Theater in Los Angeles, and the responsibilities this year were shared by Bob Hope, David Niven, James Stewart, Jack Lemmon, and Rosalind Russell. Even Donald Duck also made an appearance when he presented a seven-minute history of the movies. For the first five years of its television existence, the Oscars had always been sponsored by consumer good products. But the 30th year marked the first of three years where the broadcast was fully sponsored by the industry, allowing all the commercials to promote upcoming films. There was also a big change in the voting rules. Since 1946, the nominations had been made by 12,000 industry members from the Academy, guilds, and unions while a final vote was made by the Academy members. Now the whole process is entirely in the hands of Academy vote of academy voters. So Ben, now for the first time, we're getting a complete removal of commercials, and we also have a complete show, you know, no single host anymore, and we recently ran into some of these kind of issues and, and going back and forth whether we need a host whether we need multiple hosts so a two-part question here do the Oscars need one host is that the best way to kind of show and show off these films and have these awards and how do you feel about an Oscars show that is complete commercial lists and just simply promotes the industry itself
1: I think that the dual hosts or single host thing I think it just matters on who that person is that is hosting so I think that if some if a person who's able to do it you know themselves do it still. handle the entire thing It's great for me um i and then the same way goes for two people doing it three people doing it as long as it makes sense and it's cohesive and it just works for the night then i don't care because to me the host shouldn't make or break the evening the host is just there to guide us along so it never really mattered to me who the host was it's
2: just can they do it well Yeah, I can. I feel like that's completely fair thing to say. I mean, multiple hosts as like a fun variety, I think you get to see other people's kind of uh, opportunity to be in front of the stage to kind of like push things, tell their jokes, have a fun night. I think there's an aspect where you get to see the full kind of picture of the emotion industry, and that's a cool aspect to it. But there's something about like a single person for me like guiding you throughout the night and having that person change or having someone come back that you love. It's always been like a tradition I think for award shows. So I think I prefer a single host over the multitude of of many.
1: Yeah. And I think what we saw this past year, which didn't really work, it's just dependent on how they can handle the situation. How can they handle the moment? How can they make good jokes? But you know, if they make bad jokes, it doesn't really work, but it just it needs to make make sense it needs to feel like they actually give a shit with how with what they're talking about not just like oh this is an opportunity for me just to you know shit on everyone roast everyone which is what it's become the last few years when they have had you know comedians host but moving on to the commercialist aspect and celebrating movies and showing trailers that's exactly what it should be i don't think there's really you know much else to, to say than that like this movie that this evening should be a celebratory event for the film industry there should be tons of trailers being shown this should be the con of cons for uh for movie lovers like this is where all the big like trailers drop but they don't treat you like that yeah unfortunately so it just is what it is
2: yeah i've been a huge fan of you know gaming conferences like ea or excuse me like e3 and and obviously comic-con which has also been a big ground for films and for movie news And I don't know if we need to completely, you know, make it about promoting the industry entirely, but I think something about showing one or two new trailers to, like, you know, get people excited. And I I always think about Marvel, which is, like, such a big component of the film industry, and it's what gets most people to go out, out and go to movie theaters you know, imagine if like the next big Marvel film had its trailer at the Oscars, like how many people would tune in just for that? And whether, you know, that's getting them to actually watch the awards, I'm pretty sure they would at least see a category or two, if they were just tuning in to see the latest Black Panther three trailer, you know what I mean? So I just think there's a lot more potential to create a cycle of promoting the industry just to kind of keep it all in. Like, why are we promoting, Chevy how does the film (laughs) industry relate to cars it doesn't people just need cars and people watch movies and therefore they're related so you know I just wish we had more of a respect to kind of promote the films from within and that kind of creates a cyclical effect that we can kind of like you know keep propping up the film industry as it should be as as we kind of like try to navigate through the swampy waters of what film is these days the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award this year went to Samuel
1: Goldwyn An Academy Honorary Awards went to Charles Brackett for outstanding service to the Academy, B.B. Cahan for distinguished service to the motion picture industry, and to Gilbert M. Broncho Billy Anderson for being a motion picture pioneer for his contributions to the development of motion pictures as entertainment, and finally to the Society of Motion Picture and Television Engineers for their contributions to the advancement of the
2: motion picture industry. The Best Special Effects Award goes to Walter Rossi for The Enemy Below. The Enemy Below is a 1957 deluxe color war film about a battle between an American destroyer escort and a German U-boat during World War II. Best Film Editing
1: goes to Peter Taylor for The Bridge on the River Kwai. Taylor was an English film editor with more than 30 film credits, and this is his one and only Oscar nomination and win. Uh, something that we touched upon throughout our discussion was the pacing and the editing of this film I thought this film for being oh, what two hours and 40 minutes long yeah pacing is great I never felt that there was any weird transitions or any weird cuts I, everything is very purposeful I truly enjoyed uh, the way this film was put together
2: and edited it felt like a very modern movie in my eyes yeah it definitely felt very modern in terms of the editing and how much of the the nature shots and the beautiful montages of them traveling, trying to get to the bridge. Like there's really amazing editing throughout this movie. Plus it tells a story that like constantly has like a revving engine and it's constantly pushing you forward. And then of course we get to the amazing final act. The last 30 minutes are so tense, maybe the most tense like so, moment in any of the best picture winners that we've seen so far. So yeah, I really got to give it out for how great the editing is and you know there's a couple scenes here and there where you could probably cut them out and it wouldn't affect the film too much but there's still like those gold nuggets in the film you know with them talking about parachuting like doesn't really need to be in the movie but it creates a funny joke and then also leads to the scenes of him and builds the tension of him parachuting to get to the bridge. So, yeah, such an incredible editing by Peter Taylor here. You didn't think that uh, past Part two, Saving Iota in Around the World in 80 <laughs> Days was more tense? <laughs> yeah, it was necessary. <laughs> Best Cinematography goes to Jack Hilliard for The Bridge on the River Kwai. This is Hilliard's first Academy nomination and win, but he did win the British Society of Cinematographers Lifetime Achievement Award in 1989. And Jack Hilliard's other famous films include Anastasia from 1956, The Sundowners from 1960, Battle of the Bulge from 1965, and Casino Royale from 1967. So, Ben, any additional comments about the amazing cinematography? I think we talked a lot about how beautiful this film was and the gorgeous color that we got to see.
1: Yeah, I mean, we gave this film the worthy uh, for best cinematography (laughs) over the last 10 years. I mean it's it's incredible i mean i love the cinema scope aspect i really appreciate you know david lean and hilliard's you know collaboration to paint the frame i want to call it because they i i love when you can use widescreen format and not just have you know just people in the foreground and then just there's this huge wide landscape behind you i like that they put stuff behind that there's action and movement always happening in the background and, and it's fun to watch and interesting to see it play out so uh, i thought it was a great job and this film absolutely deserves this award moving on to best art direction this goes to sayonara art direction to ted hayworth and set decoration by robert Priestley. sayonara is a technicolor drama which stars marlon brando and tells the story of an american air force fighter during the korean war who falls in love with a famous japanese dancer played by mayushi umeki
2: Best costume design goes to Ori Kelly for Les Girls. This is the third win for Ori Kelly in the 1950s alone as he previously won for an American in Paris and Some Like It Hot.
1: Best sound recording
2: goes to Sayonara to George Groves. Best song goes to All The Way from The Joker Is Wild, music by Jimmy Van Heusen and lyrics by Sammy Kane. Sinatra insisted that all musical scenes in the film and songs therein be recorded live on set to keep the performances genuine. Frank Sinatra once said, When I do concerts and someone coughs, I like that. I like the scraping of chairs. You get that feeling that it's really happening. So I don't think there is any better time to listen to All the Way by Frank Sinatra.
0: But if you let me love you, it's for sure I'm gonna love you.
1: best scoring goes to The Bridge on the River Kwai to Malcolm Arnold. British composer Malcolm Arnold recalled that he had 10 days to write around 45 minutes worth of music, much less time than he was used to. He described the music for The Bridge on the River Kwai as the worst job I ever had in my life from the point of view of time. Despite this, he won the Oscar and a Grammy. And other notable films that he worked on includes The Sound Barrier, The Roots of Heaven, the key, whistle down the wind. For someone who says that they had no time to work with and, you know, only 45 minutes worth of music, it was pretty effective.
2: Yeah, I think it got the job done. It's not like my favorite part of the movie. I think it can be kind of heavy handed a little bit with the score, but uh, I mean, it's really not too present, which is an interesting aspect to the film that it kind of relies on a lot of diegetic and like in world noises. But when the sound and the score kind of does kick in, I think it. It gives a nice oomph, you know. Whether I think it's a little bit too much or not, no matter what, I think it adds a good kick to whatever kind of like climactic sequence we're working up to.
1: Yeah, and I and we kind of talked and started the whole discussion on the bridge of the River Kwai with the Colonel Bogey march, and I loved how and I said that it added so much character to Colonel Nicholson because uh, in his head he's watching all these guys whistling, but then he's out hearing the symphonic like British marching band playing behind it. So to me that added a lot to it, which is a creative choice by. Uh, again, the director, David Lean, and also Malcolm Arnold. So I really thought that worked well and developed the characters as well.
2: Best Short Subject Cartoons goes to Birds Anonymous. Best Live Action Short Subject went to The Wet Back Hound. Best Documentary Feature went to Albert Schwitzer.
1: Best Foreign Language Film went to Knights of Cabria, which was a film from Italy. And notably, no nomination for The Seventh Seal, which also came out this year.
2: Best screenplay based on material from another medium goes to The Bridge on the River Kwai, Michael Wilson, Carl Foreman, and-, and Pierre Boulle based on the novel by Pierre Boulle. The Variety review of the film noted that author Buell, who spoke no English, did an excellent job of screenwriting, particularly because it marked his debut in the medium. In reality, the screenplay was written by blacklisted writers Carl Foreman and Michael Wilson. They were posthumously awarded an Academy Award for Best Writing, screenplay based on material from another medium in 1985, and their screenwriting credit was restored by the WGA in 2000. The question of the screenplay's authorship was addressed several times in the Hollywood Reporter's columns in 1957 and 1958. Although Foreman and Wilson received no screen credit, on January 17, 1957, a rambling reporter noted that Foreman wrote the screenplay and owned a big chunk of the production— The assertion was immediately denied by Spiegel in January 1957 by Hollywood Reporter. In a column from 1958, Holden called the reports about Foreman writing the screenplay hogwash. According to 1958's rambling reporter, when Buell was presented the British Film Academy's award for best screenplay, he announced that he did not write the screenplay. Spiegel then clarified that the screenplay was written by several people, among them director David Lean, Biel and Spiegel himself who decided to credit only Biel on screen so we have so much mix up changing you know he said she said what we have is an amazing and I think a really really well written script here Ben what else is there to say about the Bridge on the River Kwai script
1: that communism ruined Hollywood in ways that you wouldn't (laughs) think and it's really just the anti-communists that ruined it because of all these blacklisted writers filmmakers who don't get their recognition they have to go under pseudonames that really made a lot it seems like a lot of the great stuff that we've been talking about all the academy award winners have all been written by supposed communists yeah <laughs> that
2: were blacklisted so it's a lot of writers too it's like a, they must have really hated writers yeah so like yeah you know, these people with free-thinking minds are like the enemy yeah and
1: uh i think there's a lot you can probably say about that and recognize where that's coming from but it's clearly not coming from uh some of the free-flowing people in Hollywood themselves. But moving on to Best Story and Screenplay written directly for the screen,
2: this one goes to Designing Woman to George Wells. Best Supporting Actress goes to Miyoshi Umeki for Sayonara as Katsumi Kelly. Umeki would win Best Supporting Actress in 1958 and was the first Asian performer to win an Academy Award for acting. This is Umeki's only Academy Award win and nomination. Best Supporting Actor goes to Red Buttons for
1: Sayonara as Airman Joe Kelly. Red Buttons was an American actor and comedian when he also won the Golden Globe this year for Sayonara. He's best known for his catchphrase, never got a dinner, which was a standard at the Dean Martin Celebrity Roast for many years. Another another of his catchphrases was, I did not come here to be made sport of, which was later taken up by the radio talk show host, Howie Carr.
2: Best Actress goes to Joan Woodward for the three faces of Eve as Eve White, Eve Black, and Jane. This is Woodward's first Oscar nomination and she would only, this is Woodward's first Oscar nomination and win. However, she would go on to be nominated three more times in her career. Woodward was one of the last major stars from the golden age of Hollywood, having made her career breakthrough in the 1950s. Woodward is also the earliest Surviving Academy winner in a leading category. During the 30th Academy Awards, Joan Woodward wore a handmade dress to the show. When asked about the dress, Woodward claimed, I'm almost as proud of the dress as I am of my Oscar. I spent $100, around $1,000 today, on the material, designed the dress, and worked on it for two weeks, Woodward said. So a huge shout out. I mean... You know, this is a podcast not about fashion. We don't even dive too much in terms of costuming and and costume design. However, I just thought this was a great moment to show about, well, everything's always about glitz and glamour. Where'd you get your dress? How expensive it is? You know, where did all your fancy jewelry come from? I think it says a lot for someone to actually design a dress, wear it, and do the whole thing and show up looking just as beautiful as anyone else there. And I think that's awesome. That's such a cool thing and and something that we never really hear about today and something you would never see today.
1: Oh, yeah. No, absolutely not. And one of the other things, too, is um, giving a big shout out. You know, she Joanne Woodward is still alive. Uh, we did say she's the o- earliest surviving uh, Oscar winner in a leading category. I know a couple of episodes back we talked about Avery Saint being the oldest. Avery Saint won in the supporting category. So Woodward leading, Avery Saint just overall, but two dynamic women who are Still alive and kicking today, which is just absolutely awesome. Moving on to Best Actor. This one goes to Alec Guinness for The Bridge on the River Kwai as Lieutenant Colonel Nicholson. This is Guinness's second nomination but first Academy Award win. He would also go on to be nominated three more times and even winning an honorary award in 1980 for advancing the art of screen acting through a host of memorable and distinguished performances. Guinness was not present at the award ceremony Guinness was not present at the award ceremony so Gene Simmons accepted the award on his behalf and thanked the Academy the Oscar was then taken and given to Alec Guinness who was on the set for the horse's mouth still a makeup when the award arrived so obviously one of those performances that he was nominated for was for Obi-Wan Kenobi uh in the original Star Wars movie which uh that's a, an Academy worthy uh, winning performance. But this one that Guinness gives for the Bridge on the River Kwai is it's nuanced. It's very subtle, but it's a just a great, great performance as Guinness would always provide. And, and for me, like, I love it that he won. I'm happy, but I'm like, is he the lead? Is he the supporting actor? It's one of those, like, like what, like what is it in terms of the role and how the Oscars and the, and Hollywood presents there presents their nominees and who they want to get nominated in the film so I find it fascinating that he was listed as the lead because I think there is some argument that William Holden was kind of lead of this film but I'm not going to complain because Obi-Wan I mean Alec Guinness (laughs) deserves the award
2: yeah it's it's interesting to think about who would be the lead I mean it is really between the two of them I still think I would pick Alec Guinness as the lead because he's so integral I mean it is called the bridge on the river Kwai not blowing up the bridge on the river Kwai and it's about you know the actual construction and he plays such an important role where even when he's off screen you still feel his impact you still see the men you know at the camp who are like severely concerned about him you know actively worrying about him there's always a presence known about you know al guinness's character in this film and while holden's character you know he he comes on screen and he's a really important part he's got to go back to the bridge and it's all great scenes and, and great material there but you know when he's off screen you kind of forget about him. And that's kind of the point of the film, you know, you kind of like think he's dead for a little bit, just like how Al Guinness's character thinks he's dead. So, it's an interesting question, but I think I would still go with Guinness and I mean, what an amazing, truly a subtle performance that is both hilarious at times, heartbreaking at other times, especially the scene on the bridge. And then just downright so impressive. So and it's also you keep calling him Obi Wan, which is totally fair, <laughs> especially with the I, show in our minds as well. Yeah. It's crazy to think that this is twenty years before that. Almost, I mean, twenty years before. It's twenty it years comes exactly out. before. We, yeah, before it came out. Yeah, so it's insane to think that like he's this good of an actor twenty years prior to him playing Obi Wan. Incredible. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I I've read up about it. I mean, like he doesn't he didn't seem to be like such a huge fan of the idea that oh I'm remember, remembered for Star Wars, but. He was also said financially he is set for the rest of his life because of <laughs> Star Wars. So I'm sure he was very grace you know, gracious about it and, and was very happy to be part of something so big, even if that is not what he would want to be his crown jewel. But I think I think probably this is his crown jewel. I mean, getting an Oscar for his performance, um, I mean who knows? If he was alive, we could ask him that question, like what do you think was your best performance? Maybe he wouldn't say it was this, but he definitely put a lot of effort and thought into this.
2: I could actually comment on that because I did, you know, whether this is a classic IMDb fact that's just bullshit or not, but there was a great story that I found on IMDb that was about how he seemed like he was an actor who was very concerned about his look and, and being concerned about his performance, wanting to see dailies a lot, and there was a point in time during shooting, and I think as we noted him and lean had some issues they kind of were going back and forth he was concerned about his performance whether it was coming off too goofy or not right he brought his young son i think at the time and his wife to watch some dailies they finished it didn't say a word and then Finally, before he left, he said to David Lean that he thinks it's his greatest performance he's ever done. Oh, okay. So it was like a complete twist where he was seemed awesome really concerned and worried, and then they finally watched it. And David Lean was also really worried because they weren't saying anything or reacting until later on where he was just like, yeah, no, I think this is my greatest work I've ever done. So <laughs> uh,
1: It's awesome. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Uh, I did not see that
2: story because, uh, yeah, IMDb, questionable sometimes. Best director goes to... David Lean for The Bridge on the River Kwai. David Lean was an English film director, screenwriter, and editor who is widely considered one of the most influential directors of all time. Lean directed the large-scale epics like Lawrence of Arabia from 1962, Dr. Zhivago from 1965, and Passage to India in 1984. Lean has been nominated by the Academy a total of 11 times and has won two Oscars. He also remains the only British director to win more than one Oscar for directing, as he would later win in 1963 for Lawrence of Arabia.
1: Yeah, so just an absolute powerhouse of a director. I mean, to have done not just The Bridge and the River Kwai, not just Dr. Zhivago, but also Lawrence of Arabia to include in there three just humongous films is absolutely incredible. And upon just like, you know, doing research and and looking at videos, I found some videos uh, from American Film Institute of Sidney Pollack and Steven Spielberg absolutely gushing over David Lean. And it doesn't seem like they were the only two. It seems like a ton of the directors that we love, like Spielberg, Scorsese, George Lucas, all took influence from David Lean. And we're going to watch Lawrence of Arabia, and you're definitely going to see a ton of like influence in other films that, from directors we love in that movie. So uh, absolutely influential, just crazy guy, crazy visionary. So absolutely deserves this award. And finally, moving on to the Best Motion Picture category. The nominees are Witness for the Prosecution, Sayonara, Peyton Place, 12 Angry Men, and our winner of the 30th Academy Awards and Best Picture of 1957, The Bridge on the River Kwai to Sam Spiegel, producer. The film also won a Golden Globe for Best Picture Drama, Best Motion Picture Actor in a Drama for Guinness, and Best Director at the Golden Globes that year, among other honors, garnered by the film was the DGA Award for Best Director, the National Board of Review for Best Actor, for Alec Guinness, Best Director, Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor, for Susui Hayakawa, and the New York Film Critics Award for Best Actor, for Alec Guinness, Best Director, and Best Film. The Bridge on the River Kwai was, was ranked 36th on AFI's 2007 100 Years 100 Movies 10th Anniversary Edition list of the Greatest American Films, but it also moved down from its original position at 13 on the AFI's 1997 list, so still in the top 50, though. As the same movies were nominated in the Best Picture and Best Director categories for the first time at the Academy Awards in 1957, The Bridge on the River Kwai is also the first movie to win both awards against the same competition in both categories. And as just a little fun side note, when Sam Spiegel went up to accept the award, they played their Colonel Bogey March. Because Comet... It makes your mouth mouth turn. turn. Come on, John. You love it. Comet. Comet. There we go. It tastes like gasoline. Comet. Comet. It It makes you vomit. vomit. So drink some Comet Comet and
2: vomit. Okay, John, take it away. Comet. (laughs) It makes your mouth turn green. Comet. Comet. (laughs) God, I love that.
1: (laughs) You fucking grandpa, man. Uh, (laughs) Dude was a wild man. I'll definitely say that. Anyway, so let's move on to some stats, figures, for the bridge on the River Kwai. So the bridge on the River Kwai currently holds a 95% uh, rating on Rotten Tomatoes with an average rating of 9.33 out of 10. The tops critics percentage given an 80, but their average rating is an eight point is a nine point eight out of ten. So a little strange right there. Can't always trust Rotten Tomatoes. The audience score is a ninety-three with a four point three four out of five. IMDB gives it an eight point one. Metacritic gives it an gives it an eighty seven and it won seven Oscars out of eight total nominations. So only missing the one uh for best supporting actor for Susui Hayakawa, which probably should have won. Anyways, John, what do you rate the bridge on the river Kwai?
2: I gave the bridge on the river Kwai my highest score yet at a ninety-seven. Wow. And to be honest i think this probably is my favorite film that we've watched yet out of all 30 best picture winners i would probably say this is my favorite you know if we go outside of the winners then maybe it kind of be a a tough battle with a rear window out there but i really love this movie I, i don't think there's really much i would really change whether you know to give something 100 or not is like such a challenge for me i mean some people would deem 100 as like a perfect movie which you know what what does that word even mean how do you even define that especially for a film which has so many moving parts to it for me it's a 97 just because i think maybe there's five minutes you could cut out of this movie that you know could speed up the runtime a little bit but everything about this movie is so compelling i love all the characters i love the story the visuals the sound effects and the sound design of this movie is incredible I I'm just actually blown away by how beautiful this movie was and and how just well constructed it was and how modern and just in awe of, of this film. But Ben, what did you give, The Bridge on the River Kwai?
1: I am uh, I'm going with John here. I also gave it a 97, which I know I give high ratings. It's not my highest one. I've I've given 99 once, but this movie is pretty pretty great. It uh it has everything you can want out of it. It has, you know, has action. It has adventure. It has tension. It has you know, just whimsical aspects of it. There's some humor. There's just really great back and forth. The dialogue is great. The cinematography is great. There's not really any romance or love interest in this, which I'm okay with not having. I don't think that necessarily needs to make it a great film, but I just need something dramatic and something that you can sink your teeth into, have fun and feel like that you're watching something compelling unfold in front of you. And that's what this film does on all levels. So I'm really impressed. I I love this film uh, every minute of it yeah there's a minute or two maybe you're it's not your favorite but it doesn't do anything bad it's not anything that's like oh my god that's so fundamentally wrong it's just like okay like that scene was good wasn't great but i'm totally fine with that and i think that's 100 percent acceptable and yeah so I, I i love this film to me it, it's solid all around so i'm going with john for 97 so what that means is john your average rating out of the 30 films that we've watched is a 70 is a 72.9 so you're close to you at 73 and i'm at a 76.5 so a little low because we hit some really bad ones uh a few times like around the world in 80 days brought it down but we've also had some really highs of highs and this is definitely one of the highs of highs that we've hit over 30 films and it, it's absolutely incredible that we reached 30 so john for the 30th time i need to ask you is the bridge on the river Kwai worthy of the best picture award of 1957
2: Yes, but... Oh, no. I think we have to talk about 12 Angry Men. Okay. You know, like I've tried to do every podcast now moving forward, I want to at least watch one other Best Picture winner. And this time, I had to pick 12 Angry Men. I mean, it's it's the movie that jumps out right away when you look at Witness for for the Prosecution, Sayonara, Peyton Place. And then, of course, we have 12 Angry Men. So this is the first time I've watched this, produced by Reginald Rose and Henry Fonda. I've heard so much about this movie. In fact, I've seen a lot of scenes from this movie. I think I've seen literally the end and beginning scene. Somehow I hadn't seen the full movie, but I really enjoyed it. You know, it's a movie that takes place almost entirely in one location with these 12 angry men, as the title suggests. And I was so compelled. And to say you're compelled by a movie that takes place in one room is extremely difficult. And then to also say how much you learn about each individual character How, like, fascinated you are about this trial. You pick apart these people and kind of figure out who's right, who's wrong, who has ill intentions from the beginning. It's a really fascinating movie. And now, to look at 12 Angry Men and then kind of, like, put it side by side to The Bridge on the River Kwai, I think I would, no matter what, always want to go back and watch The Bridge on the River Kwai over 12 Angry Men. And, you know, that's not to say it's a better film or not. I I just found 12 Angry Men to be a little heavy-handed now especially looking back on it uh, it's clear that we're talking about racism with, with just 12 white men which is you know that's a hot topic that I don't really think is for us to kind of decide whether that's right or wrong but it's an interesting thing and I think it was, was very progressive for the time and the movie is great like I would never say anything bad about 12 Ranger men I just think for me personally I love a good war film I prefer films in color just because I love and the amazing color especially when we're seeing it in this crazy different formats like cinema cinema scope like we've uh, recently seen and technicolor you know and, and i love a good war film and i love the comedy that we get with the bridge on the river Kwai, mixed with the, the drama and the very seriousness of it while 12 angry men is very much a straightforward drama so ben you have any extra thoughts about 12 angry men does it come close to the bridge on the river Kwai for you
1: yeah i, I think it does and it, it is a phenomenal movie i mean you're you're absolutely right like to craft a story that, to takes place in one room you learn and there's so much character development it it's like a play playing out on screen it's a great film and i absolutely love it um i i still don't think that that would be my pick for best picture i love the big scope of the bridge on the river Kwai, and there's nothing wrong with 12 angry men but i don't know just to me having more having the cinema scope having the the color the just everything that they put that david lean put into the bridge on the river Kwai makes it a better picture Whereas the story in 12 angry men is, is phenomenal and fascinating. And, and, is, and I think it is better. And, and I love that script. I just feel like bridge on the river quiet feels like the, the big movie. And, and it feels like that where we are in film history from the fifties, early sixties, that scope and bigness and grandness is the, is what drives the industry. The blockbuster movies are really taking over, uh, for at this time, the film industry and, I, so that's why, to me, I think it's, a, it's okay, and I'm happy The Bridge on the River Kwai won, uh, but also love 12 Angry Men. Um, and I, another thing, too, that I think makes The Bridge on the River Kwai actually longer lasting than 12 Angry Men is where I work. I work in production, so there is some downtime and people watch TV. And people at the time, literally, as we were about to record this episode day of, someone was watching The Bridge on the River Kwai on TV, which absolutely just blew my mind that people wanted to watch that just casually because I don't think you can casually watch 12 angry men, but you can jump into the adventure like where they were when I saw them watch the movie. They were at the point where uh, shears is being told, yeah, you're going back into the jungle. We need you to go. And to me, that was like, wow, that it just feels like just a classic thing just to jump into the adventure. Like we're going back in going back to the jungle. It just felt so right for a movie, right for a story. Um, so I feel like the bridge on the river Kwai is like much longer lasting than 12 angry men. Uh, For a lot of reasons So to me, it's worthy I guess I didn't really say that clearly Bridge on the River Kwai, absolutely worthy Of the Best Picture Award Um, So John, any last minute thoughts on the Bridge on the River Kwai 30th Academy Awards Our 30th episode Madness Madness. (laughs) Absolute madness So thank you to listening to Worthy
2: I'm Ben And I'm John And And this this is Worthy Worthy. And Comet It makes your mouth mouth turn
1: green Comet. Comet. Comet
2: It tastes like that's a comet,
1: it makes you vomit, so drink some comet and vomit.